A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 174 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me, like that feeling of being home in the Falcon, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Ah, so it's kind of like the joke that's going now with uh, Fulton Virtual in my teaching job. You can just walk around in your underwear if you like, because you're home. Like a have it your way Hanes commercial kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know how you would do that. A have it your way Hanes commercial because have it your way. Isn't that Burger King? So it'd be Possibly. like <laughs> a whopper in your underwear. Oh, wait, that means something completely, completely different. And we're off in the woods already. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, how you doing? You sound still a little stuffy. It sounds like you've been fighting the demon of pollen. Oh man, it has been brutal. In fact, uh, my littlest one came down with uh, the same allergy, or or maybe it's just a head cold at this point. Either way, uh, she had the same running of nose, and it got to the point where all I'm doing is just hacking up clear phlegm kind of stuff. And she was doing that, but she's three, so she can't really hack anything up. So she was just throwing it up. It was it was like, no, spit that out, spit the blah. I'm like ah. <laughs> it was a really, really uh, messy morning uh, yesterday, especially. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm slowly hacking it all out, getting there. Uh, but yeah, once the cottonwood starts to dump, man, oh, it is a miserable two weeks. That is some nasty. That is some nasty. Uh, from a miserable standpoint, if we can make this a bad transition, uh, I've been going back through now, and I'm rereading yet again the early Marvel stuff. We had a guy drop out from writing an article that was supposed to cover the original Marvel series up to The Empire Strikes Back for the second of those Sequart Star Wars books, and I've stepped in to fill that void, so I'm actually writing an article now for all three of them. You get the Rebels one, and then the Marvel one, and the last one will have the thing that's basically intellectual honesty and why criticism is good and that sort of thing. And, man, I guess every time I read it, I block out just how bad some of these stories were and just how much... Luke looked like a cross between Fabio and Prince Adam of Eternia. It's just so horrid. And they didn't even fix some of this stuff with this remastered edition. Remember how they were doing that whole, it's a new hope, the trade paperback form, remastered for a new generation, and how Marvel is basically reselling a hardback version of their New Hope adaptation? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, by remastered, they mean recolored. That's it. So Jabba oh. is still Mosep. Luke and Leia still do a little bit of French kissing before the Battle of Yavin. It's it's really a bizarre, bizarre product. I'm kind of glad I got it from CheapGraphicNovels.com instead of getting it full price from, say, Things from Another World or close to it. Because I think at about 10 or 13 bucks, 
it's okay for the price to put it in the collection, but not at the full, you know, 20 or 25 or whatever it is. It's just, it's weird. The colors are beautiful now, but it's still the same old bizarre adaptation that existed back in 77 and 78. That's truly sad, because, I mean, that's the one thing I was really hoping for is some new adaptations of these things. I mean, you know, we've got all these quasi-canon stuff in the aspect of, well, those Legends novelizations... Well, they, they kind of fit, you know, they fit so far as they line up with the films. Like, no, give me an adaptation that is canon, that doesn't have a blue Yoda, that doesn't have references to stuff that isn't canon. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Although, I do believe that is something that is mentioned by the person who is our, our message focus here for our fourth and, at the moment, final feedback episode here. So I guess that uh, opens the door. For what are we talking about, Mar? Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we address Alexander Kay's audio feedback. Now, consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. That's right, and he actually sent these in chunks, similar to how Andrew Gilbertson did in our last episode. In this case, uh, quite self-contained as far as the chunks go, so we're going to go bit by bit here, part one, then comments, part two, and then our comments, and so forth, because there are a lot of interesting points brought up for discussion here. So, that being said, here is Alexander's part one. Hello, Mark and Nathan. It's me, LXK, from Germany again. After zipping through the last 100 episodes um, I was missing since my last audio feedback, I think you can well imagine that I've got a list chock full of keywords I want to touch in this round of feedback. So enough about how this is going to be, let's start it since I'm going to compete with you in monologuing once again. Part 1. The Disney deal and all its consequences. First of all, I'd like to give you a short background of me to give a better context when I talk about this topic. <clears throat> I became a Star Wars fan in 1998 by rather accidentally grabbing the first um, Young Jedi Knights book in a local shop, so essentially being introduced into the galaxy far far away by the EU. Though I knew the classic trilogy before, I somehow never was that heavily involved, thus missing the theatrical release of the special editions by year, which I still highly regret. Movie-wise, I was quote, uh, I quote-unquote grew up with the um, prequels and enjoyed them a lot. For example, I gobbled up every novelization before I watched the movie, besides gobbling up other EU works all the way through, like um, of course the Thorn trilogy, which I presented the last command as my favorite book in literature classes and middle book way back then. So when I first heard of the Disney deal and the new forthcoming movies announced, I thought, oh my god, why on earth? Though it was not immediately stated, I instantly knew the EU, at least post-Ender, would be flushed down, down the toilet. I was devastated. I invested so much lifetime, let alone the money, into the EU, and now, because following Luke's lineage, much like Mark, um, is my bread and butter, most of it gone, 
I was highly wary at what was coming. In my opinion, no new films would have been needed. I would have been equally li living happily ever after without. Though by now I realized I myself was drawn into the GFFA to a high degree due to the prequels and especially all the new material based around. Nevertheless, I kept being skeptical until the release of the episode 7 trailer. And though I really was reluctant to like it, I immediately was hooked by the trailer. Though the lightsaber was definitely weird but nonetheless looked cool. And I still don't know why everyone freaks out especially about the X-Wing so much, since I myself always enjoyed the inventions of new vehicles in all incarnations of Star Wars. Similarly with the new Star Wars uh, number 1 comic. When I saw the preview of the encounter of Vader and Luke, I was really intrigued, cause this was a completely new and fresh possibility to clarify the first encounter and finding out Luke's name, and was eager to see how it was handled. Though I read many many people were annoyed or bored by that due to it being covered so often in Legends. So can we await a golden age of continuity error free stories for decades to come? Possibly. But on the other hand, even now with only the films, they are already contradicting themselves to some degree, let alone the Clone Wars Season 6. But what I am um, already annoyed of is definitely the co constant bashing of the prequels by, as it seems, nearly everyone, including the Episode 7 cast, especially Oscar Isaac. Of course the prequels are flawed, but I grew up with them, and I love them as much or even more, and for me they'll always, they'll always be an integral part of Star Wars. And let's be honest, the Clone Wars couldn't have been such a huge su success uh, without them, let alone exist. So what do I hope for now that we can uh, for, for now that we can't alter anything? As stated before, I can happily live with the exploration exploration of events that must have happened, like the Luke Vader encounter, to give them a fresh and continuity-wise definite definitive touch. And I'm definitely eager to see the episode three, four. Uh, gap filled, so amongst others, uh, other themes, the consolidation of the Empire. As it is now being done to some degree, cause I always felt it being underrepresented in Legends, except for the time directly after Episode 3 and the years before Episode 4. I especially look forward to how they handle the fact that there seem to be other Jedi around when Luke joins the Rebellion, cause this was not handled at all or only little in Legends in my opinion even if it was due to the convoluted nature of the episode uh, 4 to episode 5 uh, time frame also publishing wise. Granted, we don't know what happens with uh, Kanan and Ezra, but they are right now still alive, as well as possibly Ahsoka. <clears throat> I also hope for things like maybe new novelizations, especially of the classic trilogy. And no, the, n the junior novelizations to come are not satisfying this desire. With their, which they are kind of doing uh, soon with the original Marvel comic, comic adaptations or which was done with the episode 4 uh, special edition comic. I also found the idea of a fellow Beyonder intriguing to convert some books like Plagueis that don't read in, reach into post-endor uh, post canon into canon comics. Though converting other comics into new comics would be weird, but maybe the other way around would work with for example Agent of the Empire or the like. But what I fear the most, and what I'd detest to see, is an army of Sinnohs, characters in name only. Though many people just like Mark would love to see that happen, for me it would be the worst case scenario. After having seen what they did to Quinlan was, maybe also cause he is my favorite Legends character of all time, other examples like that would be right out horrible. Imagine a whiny Jehan Cross as Senator or so in Rebels. 
I'd rather prefer similar characters with other names with not um, to legends, but please, please, please not going any further. Just take a look at the ISB and uh, the Inquisitor and Rebels. That integration was done perfectly. All in all, of course, I understand the decision to start with a new canon not only from a business standpoint. Because, let's be honest, the old one was really hard to access. Having, <clears throat> having manga as my second passion, I myself, on the other hand, never touched upon other um, US comics than Star Wars. Besides being never that fond of superheroes, uh, superheroes in and of themselves, I also found the sheer amount and the convoluted nature of the multiverse and most of them always intimidating, if not deterred. Though by now, I nevertheless hate the term accessibility. So in the end, I'll grievously uh, miss all of the legend stuff, especially my bread and butter post and OEU, and specifically that this part won't continue, at least in the foreseeable future. Sorry, Mark, I also highly regretfully don't see that coming. I also mourn the loss of the sheer amount of lore to simply talk about. Imagine talking about the several great schisms, the difference between the Jedi and the Sith Civil War, or the Yuuzhan uh, uh, Wong War with a fan newly introduced after the canon restart. They simply won't understand you, or even declare you insane. What does that all mean for me as a collector? Um, my collection is, always, uh, is definitely complete. I decided for myself that I won't collect the new canon stuff. At least that also means I can finally read through all the stuff from one continuity without constantly lagging behind. Don't get me wrong, I'll definitely consume the sto story group canon stuff. Mostly digitally, I think. That's a no-brainer, but I stopped collecting. You know, a lot of good points in there, a lot of ideas here that we can jump off of. Um, so I guess we've each sort of taken our own notes here to keep track of things. Um, for my part, let's see. Uh, I do find it kind of amusing that uh, you use The Last Command as a favorite piece of literature in a class before, because when I was in school and had to do a thesis paper on any type of literature, I want to say it was in senior year or junior year of high school, I chose Spawn the comic series and use that as a piece of literature talking about foreshadowing and and illusions and literary references and religious themes and that sort of thing so uh, it's nice to see that others are out there using sci-fi as a a school thing when it's not necessarily classic sci-fi like 1984 brave new world and so forth uh on the whole topic of how the episode 7 announcement made it obvious that the post return of the jedi continuity of the eu was going to be gone i agree as soon as we found out there was going to be an Episode 7, there was no doubt in my mind that at least most of what happened after Return of the Jedi would be gone, because there's no way that they would make themselves beholden to years and years of books and comics and so forth. Which to me begs the question, for the audience, why didn't people get that? I mean, for those who did not immediately realize that you were going to see a change to the post-Return of the Jedi continuity by them making a sequel trilogy, what did you expect to happen? Did you expect them to build based on all the novels and stuff that came before? Were you somehow expecting them to make movies out of novels? I understand that those are options they could have taken, but they're certainly not most likely options they could have taken. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, what did people expect? I mean, maybe they just expected that the post-Return of the Jedi stuff would be wiped out and the stuff prior to Return of the Jedi would still exist. And they were looking for that sort of thing, which is something we had talked about as a possibility before, before the canon announcement and all. But I gotta wonder, what did people think was gonna happen? 
when Disney bought Star Wars, one of the things they'd mentioned was the fact that they were excited about the databank. You know, Leland Chi's little project of where it had all the canon levels, had all the backgrounds, all the stories, had all these characters that already had stories there. They were really excited about that, which kind of left you with the feeling like, oh, hey, finally, somebody that's going to acknowledge all this stuff and use it. Granted, they went more with like, we'll do a, a clean reboot of the backstory and then use the stuff. It. You know, it's worked out because now story group has become George. But, yeah, I think there were options. And I think that that one statement left a lot of EU fans really hoping, well, maybe these guys are going to be someone that that enjoys it all. You know, I mean, one of the things I've always said as an EU fan, I always wish that George was an EU fan. That would have been awesome. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have had conflicting issues and, and had the Clone Wars come in like a wrecking ball. You know, you would have had him honoring it, considering it Star Wars, but he always considered it something side project. So, yeah, I, I think I think that one statement for me, especially, was what gave me the most hope. It was like, oh, oh, they, they've got plans for these stories. Huh? OK. But no. Yeah, not so much. Uh, the prequels. Why do people bash the prequels? I really think it comes down to what people expect of Star Wars. Because for those who grew up with the classic trilogy and the way that Lucas always presented the idea of Star Wars and the way that the spin-off authors produced different projects and tried to grab the spirit of Star Wars, it was always sort of this, it's mythological, there's all these archetypes and such, it's a, it's a story that follows the hero's journey, etc., etc. And the prequels, by their very nature, are a different type of story. They're not necessarily a mythological hero's journey, they are a tragedy. They're more of a Hamlet type of thing. A character who, because of their own decisions, their own flaws, winds up falling from grace and basically causing, by the end of the story, most of the characters that we know to be dead or in a worse off position than they were before. And that in and of itself was a drastic tonal shift. Although, what was to be expected from the prequels, it was a tonal shift that rubbed some people the wrong way. You've got people who look at it and they like, kind of like what J.J. Abrams has said with the sequel trilogy, they like the practical effects, how it felt lived in and real. It's weird in that now you can go back and watch, say, the Blu-ray or digital HD versions of the classic trilogy, which, by the way, I just did a From the Star Wars Home Video Library video, finally, on the digital HD collection, if you're curious about what's you know in those. It's up on YouTube and all. But you can watch those, and for the most part... Barring some CGI that was inserted in 1997, most of the effects and such still hold up. Like, the Millennium Falcon still looks good. Um, the AT-AT walkers still look good. The space battle over Endor still looks good. Even though they were made with effects processes that really are barely still in use today. Things that were used and developed by ILM in many cases back in the 70s and 80s. Whereas you can look at the Phantom Menace and it's massive amounts of CGI relative to the amounts of CGI in, say, Revenge of the Sith or subsequent movies in the last 10 years. And oddly enough, the CGI looks dated, whereas the practical effects don't. Um, so there's sort of this sense of the over-reliance on CGI has prematurely dated it and was more about the setting than it was about the story, some would argue. Um, and you get the mm -hmm. fact that there's just... It, again, it's a different tonal shift, but it's also the content is different, the expectations are different of the characters and so forth. Um, Lucas directed them without anybody really there to sort of hold him back in writing and directing as opposed to having writers and directors working with him for Empire and Jedi and so forth. It was just a very different approach, and while it is still Star Wars, 
it was very different than what was expected. And you add on to that the fact that they came out in a time when instead of having decades of hindsight looking back and thinking of them as classics, they emerged into a heavy burgeoning internet fandom culture. Of course, they're going to be heavily, heavily criticized. So the prequels were kind of in a no-win situation. I almost think the sequels are going to be the same thing. We like to think the sequels are going to be awesome, and they probably will be. But they will have their haters because of things just as, as part of the nature of how we nitpick and break things apart as modern internet fandom people. Uh, I, we said in a previous feedback episode how I'm not sure that we would ever have a movie-going experience quite the same as with A, a New Hope back in 77, and I would say the same thing for the sequels. Unfortunately, they're going to face their own criticisms and have their own sort of prequel complex that they will go through probably because of internet fandom. Oh, absolutely. Rotten Tomatoes, you know, their review is pretty harsh, uh, but they, they nail on a lot of points. And I shared recently uh, Chris uh, Stuckman's page. He he had a review of The Phantom Menace, and he's doing all the films, but he did it uh, April 4th for The Phantom Menace. And he was trying to stay positive, and, and, and he was kind of taking a lot of the things that, that Rotten Tomato had and and a lot of other points that he had. And he brought up a lot of the same points that you did. You know, the, the one main reason why the spaceships and stuff look so good was, yeah, they were practical effects. You know, they weren't breaking down in time. The quality of those images were, were the same. But another thing that, that uh, Chris Stuckman brought up was that during the prequels, all the CGI sets and stuff, everything was built to eye level, except for Liam Neeson was super tall. So some sets had to be built even higher. It was really odd. Uh, and then he was also mentioning the fact that, that like, Almost every character was delivering their same lines, emotionless and all in that same, well, we're going to go get the Jedi now. We're going to do this. And and he, he was talking about how what Maul was the fan favorite. And then he stopped. He, he quoted all of Maul's lines. And he's like, he had the least amount of lines to botch. Like, that's probably why everybody loves him the most. Like, he comes out. He's just really badass. He's got these awesome lightsabers. He's got really cool music. And he's not speaking much. <laughs> and... You know, I, I I get where you're coming from, Alexander, because there is that thin line between love and hate. And, you know, I think that, that that's the thing when when we love it enough that when other people are, are being critical of it and it's bothering us, we just got to remind ourselves that, that there is a line there and that, you know, that, that love and hate go kind of hand in hand, kind of like the light and the dark side. And, you know, you can't have one without the other, not in this world, not anymore. Um and yeah, I, I think as Nathan puts it, you know, the sequel trilogy too might be doomed in that regard because yeah, it's going to be a, a rough go for a lot of us. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've adopted the bipolar Star Wars fan because I'm having conflicting times where, you know, I'm like, I want my Jaina solo story, but I want to see this new stuff, you know? And I, I think going forward, I hope that my want for Jaina solo stories isn't going to taint, you know, my, my viewing of the new stuff because that would be sad, you know, that I, I would allow you know, an alternate universe to affect this new universe right out the box. Um, so I'm trying to be very, you know, mindful of how I go into this because, yeah, I don't want to be one of those that walk away just absolutely hating it and being, you know, the hater of the new generation of Star Wars. That would just be tragic of all tragedies for me. You mentioned, as Mark mentioned earlier, this idea of new novelizations. That I think would probably be something that's worthwhile, but at the same time, I don't know that they would necessarily take the time to do it. And I wonder to what extent there would be an effect on previous contracts with authors who had written the original novelizations. Like, is there something within that that would cause them not to necessarily do that? Because you've seen redone, like, like junior novelizations, 
but not adult novelizations. But it seems as though right now the process is let's just re-release old stuff. As we were mentioning before uh, this part, before getting into the messages and all, I mean, they keep reprinting things. Marvel is doing this whole big thing where they're reprinting their run in hardback and they're remastering their film adaptations, but they're not changing anything. They're not fixing anything. All they're doing is tweaking the colors of those. So it seems like right now it's less of a, a, a let's revisit adaptations to make them better mindset so much as it's a let's revisit adaptations because they are an easy cash-in mindset, unfortunately. Yeah, and that that's going to lead to some choppy waters because there are some fans that are out there looking at everything in the microscope and they're like, oh, this is out now. Is that canon? And, and you know, you, I, I don't even want to know anymore. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like when it falls in that quasi zone of like, is Bad Batch or is the Utapau arc? And, you know, I'm like, anymore, if it's not 100% finished, I dare say no. <laughs> you know? Uh, but I do think we do need adaptations of these that are accurate. Though I'm okay with waiting until after the sequel trilogy comes out. Uh, you know, I, I was saying on Facebook, one of the odd little fan theories I had was, you know, what if, uh, you know, Snoke, uh, the new supreme leader that we've been told about on the internet, what if he turns out to be Palpatine or something? What if Vader threw Palpatine down the shaft and Palpatine's physical body was destroyed, but Palpatine lives on as this new entity of some form, you know, or something like that, where we find out, you know, yeah, Vader had a sacrifice and his sacrifice was huge. It stopped the emperor. But in the end, Luke and them have to stop this new form of the empire uh, of, of the emperor who is now, you know, reformed the, the first order or something, you know. And by the time the film trilogy of the second, or the third trilogy, I guess, is, is finished, we find out all these revel revelations that you could then go back into these books and seed in in a way that makes it feel all interconnected. And I think that would be a better way to go if you're going to have to rewrite these. Wait until you, there's a way that you can actually provide the story you know, in the future, have some seeds for it now in the past, and make it seem like it was meant to be there the whole time. And then have it be an official canon. Because this idea of you know my Legends books uh, of Revenge of the Sith and stuff being canon but only as far as they line up that's bs man i want something i can put on my bookshelf with my canon books that is 100 percent canon you know that that's what I want. I want some of that kind of clarity and for what it's worth by the way ladies and gentlemen star wars a new hope episode four from marvel the remastered edition ain't no legends label on that sucker anywhere does yeah. that mean Jabba is Mosep? No. It means that once again we see a blurring of the line of what canon is and isn't. Presumably the comic adaptations get the same treatment as the novelizations. Oh, they're canon, but only insofar as they actually match the films. Yes, sir. And that's where it's getting difficult. There was an article out there that was talking about the new books, but they literally were talking about them being EU. And that just scares me on so many levels right now i mean uh where's the quote here i have it. it it just it i wanted to vomit in my mouth when i saw it because i was just like that is so inaccurate
So you want to become an Expanded Universe reader. The Expanded Universe is the term fans dubbed for the Star Wars products that exist outside the core set of films. If you're coming to it now, you're in luck. It just had a reboot of sorts. And then they go on to talk about the new stuff coming out. All that new canon stuff that we were told about. And I'm like, my response to this was, that's a hell of a mislead in today's fandom. There is no more referencing the new books and comics as the expanded universe as of 2014. Because as of 2014, there is no expanded universe. There is canon, and there is legends. At least, you know, I, I, and I get the aspect of, oh, it's a blanket statement, it covers all this stuff. But it's a very inaccurate statement, and for fans of the EU who are forced to dub the title Legends, they're going to be really pissed that people are adopting that for the new canon stuff. Because that is not Expanded Universe stuff. And there's that angle of, well, if we're going to call that new stuff Expanded Universe, then how soon till we're right back to the same tier system that led to the reboot in the first place? And that is the concern from fans that have been in the know that the casual fans have no clue about. You know, that, that it's that it's that Battlestar Galactica mentality of whatever thing that's happened is going to happen again. It's all happened before. I think what happened here with this is when Star Wars launched the EU, launched the Expanded Universe or Legends continuity back in 91, it was a huge thing. You know, it was going to have all these interconnected novels and comics and games and so forth that wouldn't just be standalone or wouldn't just be a few here and there meant to fit together, but then the rest not, the way that most sci-fi franchises dealt with things. So when it became successful in this idea of continuing a story in comic or novel form of a sci-fi franchise, when that became popular, the term expanded universe came to basically not just mean those specific licensed Star Wars products, and even then there was some question of, okay, well, is there the official continuity or is it expanded universe? Because they were labeling, at times, the expanded universe as the continuity that existed as Legends now, or as anything that was licensed, even the stuff that was non-continuity, like Bombad Racing and so forth. Um, but that label was also starting to be applied to other franchises. Like, uh, for Farscape, the Farscape Expanded Universe includes these comics that came out, I think from Boom Studios, that continue after Peacekeeper Wars and tell us what happens officially to these characters. Um... Now that that term is being used in other franchises, kind of like Expanded Universe with a lowercase e and a lowercase u, they're now turning around and applying that term in the generic sense to what has happened with Star Wars, even though Star Wars is where the original specific term came from. Um, but of course, in this day and age, as much as people don't seem to care about grammar, why you would need a song like Word Crimes from Weird Al Yankovic, um, they're using it usually capitalized when it shouldn't be, right? So they're talking about the Star Wars Expanded Universe, the capital E, capital U, being replaced by this new canon, which is, in the generic sense, an Expanded Universe, lowercase letters, line of things. Um, it, I don't know if we should be proud that Star Wars as a franchise was so influential that its term for its own spinoffs became ubiquitous across sci-fi and other franchises. Or not, because now it's causing confusion. I think that they're trying to, what they're trying to say is clear to most readers, but because Star Wars uses a specific terminology, it's going to confuse some who are seeped in the terminology of now and then without necessarily the background on the specifics of what it meant now and then. 
Yeah, it definitely gets to Alexander's point about, you know, discussing the old versus the new with the new fans. It is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get the newer fans to even want to engage in Legends in the first place, which I guess brings me to the Sinos aspect of what you're talking about, the characters and name only. And I remember the first Sinos that I ever heard of, and it was Jinos, the Jason and name only. And I remember how much that really pissed me off. I hated the idea of that, but eventually I slowly came to realize that that's exactly what happened in that character. Uh, and I had to swallow that. But but in the terms of a Sinos in this reality, you know, characters from Legends making their way across. Amara Jade, for example, coming across. I Yeah, you, you said I would be happy for it. Uh, I am conflicted, though. I mean, I don't want to see every single character come across. And I don't necessarily know if I even care if the characters stay in their eras. Like, you know, having a Zane Carrick show up. Just the name in Rebels. I'd be okay with that. Um, you know, uh, but seeing Amara Jade, for example, I mean, I would like to see Amara Jade show up. Does she have to be a redhead? No. Does she have to be a force user? No. Uh, but it would be cool. You know, there are certain names that I have come to as a Star Wars fan associate with Star Wars. I name my children after a lot of them. Unfortunately for me, they're all EU fans now or EU names. And so they're not Star Wars canon names. So. There's that aspect of it. it would be cool to have some of these characters that in Legends that were so prominent, so, you know, elemental, so needed to the story that they come across because they were just they had that kind of a lasting power. You know, I don't necessarily need to have a Jaina solo, but, you know, another Jaina character showing up at some point. I think that would be cool because at least the character name of a Jaina, you know, shows up, uh, you know, Jaina solo had a huge role in legends. So have this new Jaina have, you know, a somewhat decent role in like a story arc or, you know, make her a character that can become prominent or something. Do something like that with a Mara Jade character. If you're going to do a Mara Jade character, uh, you know, the, the idea with the Mara Jade is like, well, there's two angles there. You could take the name or you could take the style of a character and retool that character. I mean, Mara Jade eventually becomes Luke's wife. If they plan to give Luke a wife down the road, they could do something where they take a lot of the characteristics that was Mara Jade, give her a whole new name, or they could you know, decide, well, hey, we could give Luke another wife. We could call her Mara Jade, but we'll just make her a whole new character. There's so many different angles they could roll with that that I'm open to that idea. But at the same time, I'm also, you know, leery of, well, if they do it, I would like them to do it decent. Uh, I think the reason why Quinlan Voss kind of rubs most of us the wrong way is because they had the opportunity to get him right versus create what they created. Like, if they did that with Voss now, I think people would have been more accepting of it than when they did it during the Clone Wars. Um, and I think that that's, that's the biggest reason why I'm more accepting of it right now than ever before. Yeah, now the Sinos term was something new to me. Sinos? Is that S-I-N-O? Are we talking about Chinese something like the Sino-Japanese War? What? Only to realize, of course, very quickly, it's a C. C-I-N-O-S. I had heard... The Geno thing before, mostly when Marks talked about it, but not characters in name only, though the concept makes sense. Um, here's the thing for me. I am able to accept, for instance, a new version of Luke Skywalker in Story Group Canon, and many fans will be able to accept this new version, this more self-doubting version of Luke for a while. Uh, or Vader. Uh, and, and the way that he is now being interpreted, and the way that the characters will be interpreted in The Force Awakens and all the lead-up materials. But it's specifically, I think, because the core hasn't changed. Whether we're talking about Legends or we're talking about Story Group Canon or some of the little sidebar, tiny apocryphal timelines that you get out of just bizarre little stories back in the day within the EU that weren't meant to ever tie into anything, the little in-canon stuff. 
the core of the characters are still there. No matter which continuity you're looking at, you still have episodes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. No matter what Luke does a year after Return of the Jedi, what he did in Jedi is still there. The character growth we saw, the character traits we saw, the personality that we saw, that's still Luke. So in that sense, we're able to look at this as a different continuity, as a what-if, as an alternate version of those characters, and be excited for it because we're intrigued to see where those characters go. But I think that only works if the core is still there. Uh, if you take a character like a Mara Jade, or a Grand Admiral Thrawn, or whatever, bring the character's name over, but not their backstory, not their history. Make them the same gender, make them the same species, whatever. But bring them over without the backstory and just have them be a completely different version of the character that happens to have the same name or maybe physical features. Like what they did with Quinlan Boss with the Clone Wars. Or Starbuck. Well, that I can get back to. Um, it's going to anger people, I think. It's going to be less easy for people to accept. Because the core background isn't there. I love alternate history stories. I love time travel stories where things go awry and things turn out a little crazy to see where mm. things go. But it's because of the what-if aspect and the fact that you've got that that core background that people know and enjoy seeing spinoffs from. Like with DC Comics and their Elseworld stuff, they have a great one called Speeding Bullets. It's basically what if instead of the, uh, uh, the ship carrying Kal-El from Krypton crashes into... Uh, Smallville and is found by the Kents and he's raised to become Superman, what if it crashes in Gotham City? He's found by the Waynes before they have their own kid. They name him Bruce, and he grows up so that when they die, he becomes Batman, but with Superman's power set. <laughs> uh, nice. It's an incredible story, but it, it works and resonates because we know the background of Superman. We know the background of Batman. We're able to see that and like to see where it goes. Take an alternate history story. Hitler's a good example to use, although I'm not sure how many people would like to necessarily follow a story about Adolf Hitler, but go with me on the analogy here. Um, take Hitler. You want to do a good alternate history story that deals with Adolf Hitler, then you do something like, what if Hitler got the atomic bomb before the United States? What if Hitler, instead of committing suicide, went on the run and there was a manhunt for him for years? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, things that take what we know of him, find a critical point, and send it off in a different direction. It, is, it may be very interesting when I talk to my students about how one person's role in history can change everything to talk about, well, what if Hitler had gotten into art school instead of going into politics? Everything changes. No World War II, and who knows how many other things changing that have come after World War II and so forth that were influenced by that event. But it doesn't make for good storytelling. You know, if I'm trying to tell a story about Adolf Hitler and he goes to art school instead, what am I doing? A romantic comedy? He meets a little Jewish girl and they fall in love and it changes his racist ideas and they live happily ever after. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> okay? Um, you need some kind of core of the familiar to be able to connect with this new story. And there's that aspect, plus there's also a time factor. I think with Battlestar Galactica, people were more able to deal with this new alternate version because there were so many things that at the core were the same. But even where they were different, like major changes to Starbuck, but even then, Starbuck is still a pirate, still a friend of Apollo, and so forth. There are still heavy angles of the original Starbuck in the new one. You also have the fact that it was decades removed from when the show ended originally versus when this reboot comes out. People had time to sort of forget the nuances 
And from as a pop culture perspective, think about the story in big, broad strokes as what was familiar instead of the smaller details being what was familiar. So they could discard some of them and go with it in a more freeform sort of way. Star Wars doesn't have that right now. The Legends continuity ran straight into the launch of the new canon. Uh, there isn't a massive amount of time for people to forget those details, especially as minutia-oriented as Star Wars fans are. And with characters like Mara Jade and such, there aren't any familiar backgrounds. I would personally be annoyed to see a character that has nothing to do with the original Mara Jade show up just named Mara Jade. That would be a Lucasism, a, see guys, we know these stories too. Look, here's Quinlan Voss, and yes, Greedo, we said Greedo. Here's a character with no bearing on his original version. We're just throwing it in here, supposedly as a tip of the hat, when the fans who grew up with those characters don't think of it as a tip of the hat, unless your tip of the hat is with a middle finger pressed up against the brim of that hat. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, use the name, like as you were saying, use Jaina. But not Jaina Solo. I still want to name our first child, if it's a boy, Cade, after Cade Skywalker. Use Cade, but not necessarily Cade Skywalker. There's a way to use the names and say, well, these names are popular. These names still exist in the universe. It's just not the same character. But when you start trying to use a character straight out of the EU, or Legends, without bringing over every aspect of the character, or at least enough of the aspect of the character to make you think they're the same one, and this is an alternate version we're seeing, then it falls apart. Because an alternate version needs to be familiar. Um, if you tell a story in which there's an alternate timeline of me, and it just so happens that a chromosome was different when I was born, and all of a sudden I'm a girl, and I'm growing up in a different part of the country doing a bunch of completely different things that has nothing to do with the me that the audience knows, that doesn't feel like an alternate version of me. It feels like they're just grasping at straws trying to find a way to connect it to something familiar when it really isn't. Uh, they're going to have to be damn careful if they try to bring over any Legends elements into the new canon. They need the familiarity. And they've done that with species, they've done it with planets, and they've done it well. But they they've... can't fall into Lucas's trap. Well, and when they do that with character models and stuff, it becomes more of like an Easter egg. Because General Skywalker from the Star Wars comic, the alternate, you know, what could have been from George's uh, rough drafts, his character model made it into some of the backgrounds in the Rebels early, you know, first season story arcs. Uh, and I, you know, it was just a simple quick, you know, you, you turn your head and you miss him. So in that case, he becomes an Easter egg when they do something like that. And I don't know. I mean, in that regard, I, I'm I'm. I'm more open to Easter eggs, I mm -hmm. guess, than when they butcher something. <laughs> well, because an Easter egg, they're not claiming it's the same character. I mean, nobody's going to go back to that episode of Rebels and claim that was General Skywalker. Yeah. No. It's a design, like they're doing with all these Macquarie references and such going into Rebels. It's just when you try to actually do something prominently and feel like you're bringing a character over, you got to make sure you're actually bringing the character. A character is more than, as the Sinos thing says, a character is more than a name. A character is a personality set. A character is the impression that they left on the audience. And doing an alternate version can be awesome. We saw that with the Star Wars Infinity stuff. But you've got to handle it delicately, or you're not creating an alternate entertaining version. You're basically name-dropping, and it's not appreciated. It's looked at as a middle finger, not a tip of the hat, as I said, which I guess I've spent a little, an inordinate amount of time on here, but it's something I'm, I'm really concerned about where they go with this and how they do it. I think they'll do it well, but we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens whenever they start to get into the stuff leading up to 
The Force Awakens and whether or not they fall into any of those traps with the characters from that that early era of Legends. The last thing that he brings up in this first part, at least that, that struck me, was this thing about how he's not really collecting anymore, right? That you can end the Legends collection and not necessarily collect anything new and feel like it's complete. And I'd say that that is a valid option, I think, that of any time to be able to stop and say, okay, this is complete, that's the time. There was a time when I thought I might stop the Star Wars Timeline Gold, though I decided not to, because I could end it and just wrap up things with Legends. In fact, I'm doing that with the Legends continuity stuff now in the timeline. I just also have a canon one going. Um, I'm curious. I never considered stopping collecting Star Wars at all um, based on the changes in canon, but I certainly felt like there was a devaluation and a frustration with the library that I have that takes up so much space no longer being as relevant. Uh, Mark, were you ever tempted to simply stop the collecting or stop the reading whenever the announcement came down? I know you said that you were very torn on the issue. I, I was torn because, yeah, I was tempted. I mean, you know, I love it first and foremost. You know, I've loved the story. Uh, and that, I think, is the hardest part, that devaluing that you, you mentioned. Because I loved Legends so much. Uh, and it became my story. And and my collection is, is you know, centered on that. Uh, that when I bring other casual fans into my sanctum now and to explain to them that, you know, well, this all, all these books right here, this giant you know bookshelf that you've got, it doesn't actually count anymore. And having to explain that, you know, it, it kind of hurts, <laughs> you know, because you're like, it's clear you've dedicated quite a bit of your time to something that doesn't count. Like, <laughs> you know, so there's that oddness. Uh and the thought of, you know, not having to, to keep up with the books because now it's a different story. And did I want to follow that story? It, it has been hard. I mean, I, I'm still each book I'm reading, I'm, I'm waiting and I keep talking about that essential Star Wars book, you know, and, and Lords of the Sith still feels like it might be that way. I'm, I'm about chapter 12 into it and I'm enjoying it. But even then, it, it's not the the book that that's hook you you know it's not the one that just reels you in just beats you down it's not like when you grab uh vector prime and by the time you're done with that book you were like what happens next that's what i'm missing right now and and that's what has been lost for me um you know the, the what happens next i'm is is the films you know what happens next that's sets the tone for everything i feel like all the books right now until those movies come out they're all gonna tiptoe around that question that i want and that's what I've always been after is the what happens next. That's why the, the current Luke Skywalker stories were the ones that were the ones that I enjoyed the most. So going back to an era where where it's the bedrock that you were talking about earlier of Luke, you know, I didn't always care for the the whiny, petulant Luke. You know, I mean, I I enjoyed how Luke evolved. I liked it when Luke became Superman. You know, I mean, that was one of my favorite things. The, the difficult part then was what were they going to do with Luke? <laughs> you know? But I enjoyed that evolution of the character, and so it is hard to go back now with these characters and kind of get back into them. But at least with, like, Lords of the Sith, they're doing it with Vader. Like, I'm, I'm getting into Vader for the first time in a way that I'm really enjoying. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the hard part about the EU before was that they had a lot of these Vader stories told in an era where we didn't know anything about him. You know, I mean, reading... The, the Lords of the Sith and having Vader think of Ahsoka and having that show up, you know, it, it it's different because when I was in that type of era before, there would never have been an Ahsoka reference. So, I mean, having that now, it does feel like it's that interconnected tissue that we always talk about loving and stuff, but it's in a new zone. And, and 
when all that was going down, yeah, it, the temptation to walk away was easy, especially when you think about the amount of money that one invests into the passion. But at the end of the day, I can't stop loving Star Wars, even if it's an alternate universe. I mean, the Millennium Falcon's going to be there. Lightsabers are going to be there. The things that drew me in from the start are still going to be there. The things that kept me loving it every single day that allowed me to hit play on that DVD player every single day and not get burned out on it. That's been shifted aside. Will they be able to bring that hope back for me and that, that awe and stuff? I'm pretty confident of it, but yeah, there was that moment where I, I was ready. I was ready to take the walk and it scared me. Now that all being said, here is part two of what Alexander sent. Part 2. The Clone Wars As mentioned last time, I was never really fond of the Clone Wars. I enjoyed parts of it, but mostly it was net to me. Nevertheless, um, I like your seasonal reviews, and I've got some opinions to share and some questions to ask. First of all, since I didn't read much um, of the Legends material based on the series, was it somewhere stated how or by whom exactly Ahsoka was chosen as Anakin's Padawan? For me it always felt like an involuntary assignment which doesn't fit the selection of Padawans and other Legends material. Or was it simply due to the Clone Wars raging? Overall, my impression was of course from the start tainted by the weird chronological order as for most others I assume. Is it known who exactly was responsible for this? Was it Lucas imposing on the creative team as his mind uh, jumped from idea to idea? Cause this degree of time jumping is even for a cartoon uncommon. Or am I wrong? But what tainted the experience much more for me as uh, a declared Legends fan was a complete distortion, uh, distortion of other Legends material. And maybe I could have lived better with it if it wouldn't uh, would have not been so useless in most cases. Hello Beach Bump Wars! Why not simply uh, inventing a new character? Why doing it this way? Similar topic with Barry uh, Fee's mind change. But also minor things like the change of the Nabuki. And also the sheer disrespect, like not acknowledging uh, Woolworton as the inventor of the witches of Dathomir at all. Or simply the disregard of the little Legends material which was uh, directly based on the series, like the comics. Not to speak of the contradictions between episodes or seasons in and of themselves. <clears throat> Regarding the Darth Maul resurrection, I was again never really fond of. Granted, they created some cool stories and gave this character much more background, or character at all so to speak which Nathan uh, liked so much. But on the contrary, they definitely devolved Count Dooku into simply a bad A, with a seemingly without own motivations, and Grievous into an incompetent hunk of a junk. That was at least for Dooku done much better in Legends material, again especially with Conan Wars and the Republic comics. So in the end, having lost Dooku, Grievous and Wars, but having gained more, doesn't work for me personally. What I again don't really understand is that everyone was so thrilled by season 5, even more so uh, than by season 4. I know there's definitely a high point with Maul's story, but season 5 also includes the Younglings arc, which was not more than okay for me personally, and the absolute low point of the series, the Droids arc, sorry that I have to mention it, whereas season 4 had throughout solid or even good stories or arcs. I also have big problems with the Mortis arc. I always saw the saga as the rise and downfall of Anakin Skywalker, mainly I think due to growing up as a Star Wars fan with the prequels, and bringing balance to the Force by wiping out the Sith or the Dark Side in general from within as the sole possibility. And then Mortis happened. 
Um, even worse, it infiltrated legends with Abeloth, not to speak of the whole Mandalorian catastrophe. Um, granted, I know that this all comes from um, Josh Lucas himself. So I was not uh, more than intrigued by the idea of a fellow Beyonder to exclude the Clone Wars from the Legends continuity by introducing some new background for the stuff that was already integrated. Honestly, for me, that would be so awesome. I could finally rest at night. Though, of course, I know that will never happen. That's, I think, how um, I'll handle this, at least in my mind. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I have to admit that the resolution of the whereabouts of Ahsoka was done really well, leaving room, for, amongst others, for a possible reappearance in Rebels someday. Though I'm still not a big fan of her, her character growth throughout the series makes her at least more likable than despicable. By the way, are you planning to one day review the story reel episodes from the Crystal Crisis arc? Lastly, I wondered a bit about your recent review of the Defenders of the Lost uh, Temple Digest. After having heard about the Kotor connections, I understood, but then I wonder why you didn't cover the Sith Hunters so far, which of the Digest comics was the most impactful story, the most impactful one story-wise, I would say. Maybe meshed together with one show with the story reel episodes? Again, sort of to bullet point my thoughts on these fairly quickly here, more succinctly than last time, hopefully. Um, who chose Ahsoka? Uh, the Jedi Council did, or Yoda did for Anakin. So remember, it was a lesson in whether he could overcome attachments or not. Uh, but yeah, it is kind of odd that he didn't get to choose his own Padawan. It wasn't, you have to have a lesson in attachments, let's have you choose a Padawan. It was, well, he needs to deal with attachments, so we're just going to thrust this Padawan on him. And he, we don't even know if he's going to become particularly attached to this Padawan, but hopefully he will, and he'll be able to learn his lesson. And you got to wonder exactly how that screwed him up, and we sort of see a little bit about his angst over uh, Ahsoka leaving in the Utapau story reels, but odd that he didn't choose. You have to wonder, though, if that's like a summer school program. You're like, oh, clearly this guy shouldn't have passed the first time. Let's give him a secondary test. Give him a, let's give him one of these troubled Padawans. As for who was responsible for bouncing around the timeline in the Clone Wars, the answer is no one and everyone. It was the assets. Right? They couldn't necessarily tell certain stories they wanted to tell or scripts that they had ready to go or pretty much ready to go because they didn't have the character models and the ship models and such necessary to do it. As the Clone Wars grew, they had many more assets they had created as part of the budgeting and the production process for one season that they could reuse again or then just slightly tweak going into future seasons. They were able to become much more expansive in terms of what they knew how to do and the assets that they had as they went along. So as they did that for that first few seasons, you did have a whole lot of bouncing around, unfortunately. But it was just a, a logistical thing from what I understand. It was not a matter of – it was not necessarily a matter of having a weird storytelling process going on behind the scenes that, that had any sort of, of purpose to it. It was just what can we produce of what we want to produce. Mm. As for distorted Legends material showing up with no purpose, um, we talked about that already to a degree, but I would agree – if you're going to do that with someone like Quinlan Voss or Barris Offie or, you know, all of a sudden bring in a new Naboo queen for no <laughs> reason, uh, get rid of Jamilia and bring in Niutni before we get Apelana later and never explain why they're doing that, uh, why not just create something new? Why not use an existing character in the right way? Or, flip side, just create someone new. It didn't have to be Quinlan Boss that was traveling with Obi-Wan looking for Zero the Hut. It didn't have to be Greedo, yes, we said Greedo, showing up in the episode with Papa Noida. 
It could have been someone else. But again, it was them wanting to reference something to look cool and to say, look, see, we respect this content too. But they did it in a way that showed that while they say they respected it, they actually didn't. It was lip service respect to that material. Just like with, well, we're going to talk about how, uh, how great it is that these holocrons came from the comics, which is true. But then whenever we do episodes on the Night Sisters and do the little background thing where Katie Lucas talks about how, how great it was to develop the Night Sisters and women's empowerment and women's societies and blah, 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 we're not going to once mention Dave Wolverton having actually created them for Courtship of Princess Leia. We'll leave that out and basically say, F you, Mr. Wolverton. It may have been your idea, but it doesn't matter. Because I'm the one who did it for the show. That will always rub me the wrong way. They showed a respect for the concept that there is a library of materials out there they can draw from, did not show respect for the original source material itself. It just doesn't work like that. It's not supposed to. You're not really showing respect, and it certainly doesn't feel like it to those who actually do respect the source material. It's kind of like, uh, like for instance, I like the film Dogma by Kevin Smith. We get a couple Kevin Smith references will be coming up here. I like the film yeah. Dogma in the theological questions that it raises. But Dogma in and of itself is, in, is highly offensive to many people, particularly people who are particularly religious. And I could see how if I had seen that and not been able to sort of turn that part of my brain off and look at it as a media satirical critique of religion, I could see getting very, very angry because they take elements of Christian and Catholic teachings, take them out of context, and use it as part of the storytelling. And you could make the argument, well, see, Kevin Smith is using some actual biblical references here. He actually is respecting that source material. No, he's not. He's using it out of context and using it to make a satirical point, but basically saying, F you people who happen to be Christian. I don't care about the way the meaning is supposed to be interpreted. I just care about how I can take this piece out of context and use it. Um, it's that sort of thing. I can see people being very angry about discarding backgrounds to create the Legends material, which, again, we sort of delved into, I guess. Speaking of changing, though, the backgrounds and the stature of other characters, I would agree that Clone Wars definitely took Dooku and altered our perceptions of him. I think, I don't know, I don't think it's so much that it made him more evil or less or or more powerful or less so much as it just kind of makes me feel like he's more of a fleshed-out character. Mm -hmm. Grievous absolutely dropped in stature. He became that mustache-twirling villain. But remember, Grievous was badass in Tartakovsky and in the comics prior to the Clone Wars cartoon series. But Grievous in Revenge of the Sith was just as mustache-twirling and douchey as he was in Clone Wars. It wasn't the Clone Wars that made Grievous suck. It was Lucas who chose to make Grievous suck. It was the fact that others thought he wasn't going to be a sucky character. I don't mean sucky as in a bad character. I mean just a weak, mustache-twirling villain character that isn't really nearly as menacing as he was made out to be. It was the EU people and Tartakovsky that said, Ooh, look at this design. He must be awesome. And made him this true menace that apparently he was never meant to be. At least in Lucas's eyes. Uh, I do agree also that Maul was raised up in stature, and I do appreciate the fact that Maul finally got some background to him. I think with Dooku, he finally got time to be a villain. You know, we we finally saw some some screen time of him playing the part. Uh, you know, I mean, for the most part, 
everything we got about him was all in the you know the opening scrolls. It's like. Episode 3. Oh, the Sith Lord Count Dooku. Okay, we figured that part out. Okay, check that off. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you're right on there with Dooku and, and the Grievous aspects. The one with Maul, though, uh, the one thing that always kind of had me the most perplexed about Maul is... Why do you bring back a character like this with no exit strategy for the character? Like, I get why you bring the character back. But why would you bring him back without having an idea of what you're going to do with him in the end? That's the part that gets me. I mean, when we get done with, with Son of Dathomir, I mean, I, I wish they wouldn't have called it Son of Dathomir. They should have called it Talzin's Tale because it really was more her wrap-up. It had very little to do with wrapping up what was going on with Darth Maul. It, it did set more of the aspect of, well, he's no longer in Sidious's clutches. And that's as far as it went. Which leaves me, again, just you know, constantly scratching my head going, what were they planning on doing with him? I mean, they've constantly kept him alive for what? Snock? I don't know. I, I mean, what is he doing? <laughs> Running a tattoo parlor on Tatooine. <laughs> Um, let's see, uh, do agree, of course, obvious, I guess, after you listen to this show and you listen to Rebels Roundtable and listen to Republic Forces Radio Network, uh, yeah, I think we're in agreement that the Mortis trilogy kind of sucked and changed things, and unfortunately does need to be there now thanks to Abeloth. I do find it intriguing, the idea that, well, maybe they could just say Clone Wars is only canon and come up with some other way to rationalize the Clone Wars elements that show up in the Legends continuity, like put together a guide that shows an alternate version of them and that that's the only thing that's true to Legends as opposed to Clone Wars. They'll never do it, but it makes for an interesting way of trying to approach that. The idea of the Star Wars saga and what it focuses on, I will say that I find it interesting that over time they've changed it, right? Because Alexander mentioned it's sort of Anakin's saga, right? And Lucas has said sometimes it's Anakin's saga or it's the Skywalker's saga. you got to remember this is one movie. And it's meant to be seen one through six. So I think when you watch the actual movie in order, the story will become very clear that Anakin is the chosen one. You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the Force. You believe it's this boy? And even when Anakin turns into Darth Vader, he is still the chosen one. The prophecy is that Anakin will bring balance to the Force and destroy the Sith. He becomes Darth Vader. Darth Vader does become the hero. Darth Vader does destroy the Sith, meaning himself and the Emperor. He does it because he is redeemed by a son. So, you have accepted the truth. I've accepted the truth that you were once Anakin Skywalker, my father. That name no longer has any meaning for me. It is the name of your true self you've only forgotten. I know there is good in you. So the prophecy is true. And by doing that, he redeems himself and goes from being Darth Vader back to being Anakin again. You were right about me. Tell your sister, you were right. Everybody thought of Darth Vader as this big evil guy that 
you know, had no heart. He was just evil. Um, but in the end, it's not that at all. And it, I mean, here's a guy who has lost everything. Right, and Lucas has said sometimes it's Anakin's saga, or it's the Skywalker's saga, right? That Anakin falls, and then Anakin's redemption is through the children. So it's really Anakin's story that carries through, which, one, makes me wonder, to what extent is there any relevance to Anakin slash Vader in the sequel trilogy? Because he's dead, as far as we know, by that time, unless he somehow survived being burned and his spirit came back somehow. And remember, prior to the prequels, heck, actually prior to... The Empire Strikes Back. What was Lucas calling the Star Wars, the first Star Wars film, A New Hope, in drafts? What was the novelization initially referred to, etc., etc.? The Adventures of Luke Skywalker. Hi, I'm Hayden Christensen, and welcome to Movie Phone Unscripted. I'm here with the one and only George Lucas, and we're going to interview each other using your questions. Let's get started. Are you ready, George? I am ready. Let's go. At what point in planning Star Wars did you decide Darth Vader was going to be the central character? Well, to be very honest with you, when I wrote the very, very first script, it was about um, Anakin Starkiller and his two kids. Starkiller. Starkiller. And uh, he was a rogue Jedi, and um, there were remnants of that that sort of found its way into the final Star Wars. So I, I would say right from the very beginning, Darth Vader was a central character. I see, I see. Very interesting. You didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. Why did you start in the middle of the Star Wars story and then go back to the beginning? Well, originally Star Wars was one simple little movie based on a Saturday matinee serial. The idea was that you came in, you saw episode four, you know what happened before, you know what happened after. Uh, the original script, the, it was one script. It started with Darth Vader coming in the front door it ended with Darth Vader throwing the Emperor down the tube. Um, and so you got a much better picture of the tragedy of Darth Vader, which is what it was really about. When I started writing, it got too big. I didn't have the money. I would never get a studio to do it. So I just took the first third and decided I'd make that into a movie, and I would come back to the other two parts later, uh, which is why I ended up with sequel rights, because I was determined to see to it that that all got finished, that, that movie that I started with. Um, I start in the middle, it was episode four right from the beginning because I don't like beginnings. You know, I um, like to cut right into the middle of the action, that's kind of what we do on Indiana Jones, it's kind of what I do on American Graffiti, it's just, you know, I, like to, I don't like to do the exposition part. Um, but if you start in episode four, you still have to write the backstory, the exposition, in order to know where you're going. You do a little profile on each of the characters, who they are, where they came from, what their feelings are about things. And in this case, the sort of polit political atmosphere of the Republic and the Empire, how did the Republic become the Empire, and everybody's role in that. And that's really what was the backstory. When I finished Star Wars, I figured that was it. You know, once I finished uh, Return of the Jedi. And I never really expected to go back and turn the, the backstory into a movie. But um, as time went on and I realized that the icon of the evil Darth Vader so sort of overwhelmed his character that the idea that he is actually a tragic character kind of got, it's there, but it got lost a little bit, overwhelmed, I should say. And um, so by going back and, and uh, telling Darth Vader's story, telling the whole story right from the very beginning, I was able to get the full range of all the things that were going on and how everything fit together. 
What's next for the Star Wars mythology, George? Well, the saga is now finished. As I say, it starts with uh, Anakin as an eight-year-old. It ends when Anakin dies. And the story is really about Anakin. So for him to now say it's all Anakin's story is kind of disingenuous, but this is the same guy that said he only ever planned six films when he went from one uh, being A New Hope all the way up through 12 episodes and then saying, oh, no, it's actually nine. Oh, no, it's actually six. And A New Hope is actually episode four rather than episode one. And then it's, oh, well, I said I wouldn't make a sequel trilogy. Shut up. Um, Lucas is constantly changing his mind, but to say that he always planned it to be Anakin's saga is just as disingenuous as his constant changing of answers on the number of episodes and that sort of thing. Um, it may be the Skywalker story, and perhaps we'll see that coming up in the sequel trilogy. Maybe we'll wind up finding that Rey actually is a Skywalker, for instance, but there is no it's Anakin's or it's Luke's story that is consistent with Lucas over the years. I bought that lie. I bought it well, and I enjoyed it for the longest time. I took solace in the fact that it was Anakin's story and that Lucas had nothing planned for Luke Skywalker. But he had plans for Disney. As far as Ahsoka, I do find it funny that he refers to her as more likable than despicable. It's, again, it's kind of like being valedictorian of summer school. It's praise, but it's grudging praise. And then lastly, will we cover the story reels and will we cover the Sith Hunters? We will definitely be covering the story reels for Clone Wars on Rebels Roundtable at some point because it's carrying on the legacy of Republic Forces Radio Network, kind of like Season 6 of Clone Wars did. Not sure when, but that's something we're hoping to do in the near future, both the Utapau ones and the Bad Batch ones. As for the Sith Hunters... I would swear I've covered that somewhere. I don't know if it was the EU review or where, or maybe it was just like a side topic at some point on an episode of Republic Forces Radio Network. I know I've talked about it at some point, but yeah, that'd be an interesting to come back, to, interesting one to come back to, and probably be something that'd be worthwhile bringing in, say, Jonathan or someone on and making another simultaneous release thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Just not something that had really been on our radar recently, though that begs the question of whether we should also be covering anything else from Clone Wars, like Wild Space, No Prisoners, uh, the crappy comic series. Uh, it's just something that may be on the radar, but not in the near future. Although, for what it's worth, you'll notice here as we go through these different parts of, of the messages here from Alexander, Alexander, you seem to kind of want us to cover everything. Like, lots and lots of stuff being asked, hey, why don't we cover this, why don't we cover this, why don't we cover this, why don't we cover this? It's a matter of time. We will eventually, eventually get to a point that he makes about um, how it would have been nice to have background of a certain thing. Like, it would have been nice to see us talk about certain stories from Empire with Janik Sumber before we talked about Rebellion so that it would add more emphasis on what we got in My Brother, My Enemy, for example. Whereas we were using Rebellion and building up to what happens in Vector. The problem with Star Wars is that if you're really going to go deep into the background of everything and have to cover everything that led up to something before you cover that something, in theory, you could go back many, many years worth of material, and you'd wind up with many episodes sucked up just for that purpose. It was hard enough being able to devote so much time to Rebellion, Knights of the Old Republic, Legacy, and what was it, Dark Times, and building up to Vector and how long it took to get there and how much time it took in terms of episodes to get to that point. It was difficult enough doing that, 
let alone to try to also build up the stuff that came before that. It's like when we cover the New Jedi Order eventually, we can cover stuff like Invasion along with it and whatnot, but do we need to also go back and deal with Rogue Planet? To what extent do you have to cover all the background, and to what extent can you just say, okay, we're going to start at this point, and that's it? Because there will be people listening to a show like this who might be interested in that discussion, but they also might not. Those who want us to cover more novels probably are happy that we didn't talk about Empire in leading up to talking about Rebellion, because it would have been more comic episodes. Those who didn't really care for the comic stuff leading up to Vector and wanted to see more about other stories, more modern publishing stories, probably would say, boy, I'm glad they didn't go further with that or go deeper with that, because whew, now at least they can move on to other things. We want the topics we cover to be somewhat diverse because we don't want to get into a rut so that we don't have listeners who maybe jump ship because they feel like what they're getting isn't what they necessarily want to hear. So getting into the background of everything we cover, it's a delicate balance because if we go too deep into it, we're lost in the weeds to an extent, I think. Yeah, it is nice to know that we got plenty of topics that we can always come back to. I mean, you know, the, the Subner one was one that – you know, most of these, as I'm rereading them, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah, I forgot all about that side plot. Uh, and so, you know, half of that slid right past me because we were so focused on what was going on with Vector uh, that, you know, you could almost go back and recover it with just that angle, which I think if we ever do go back and, and which I know we will. But when we get to, you know, Empire and stuff, when we hit those points, we'll probably go back and talk. Well, if you go back to this one or this episode, you can hear what we talked about about most of it. But this is how it ties in this time, you know, and kind of fill that in and, and and build it up. But yeah, there's so many different books and stuff out there. I eventually I worry about the aspect of, well, we won't be able to cover, you know, all the topics because they'll eventually be hit in each book, but we could always go back and come at them from different angles like that. And so, yeah, knowing there's plenty of topics and stuff out there, it, it can be a little daunting because yeah, you run out of time. I mean, you know, we, we started this out with just, again, you know, we'll, we'll put out an email for feedback and see what we get. Now we're looking at, you know, four episodes of feedback. And even this one, we're, you know, some of them are two to three hours long. So it's like, you know, you, sometimes you make the plans and then the reality is, is it takes up a whole month or almost two months worth of, you know, our schedule. And yeah, the, the fear is that, you know, we'll have some people that are like, I just want to hear about the EU. I don't care about feedback, you know these guys and their feedback they're always giving the fans their, their time in the sun and i don't want that i just want to hear about the books you know so yeah it's definitely we want to try to please as many people as we can and also stay focused to what we're focusing on which is being beyond the films that brings us to part three part three comics first of all i would like to ask a really basic question which you might be able to answer since I, since I don't read, uh, unlike you, other US comics. Why is it that on most covers, author, pencil and inker are named, but not the colorist, not to speak of the latter? I don't know how exactly um, the creative process for a novel US comic uh, works, apart from knowing that it's a consecutive process from penciling to inking to coloring to lettering. But without meaning to sound disrespectful, isn't inking simply retracing the lines of the penciler? In my opinion, the colorer deserves the credit um, on the front page, cause independent of how good the pencils slash inks are, colors can make or break a story, at least for me. Hello Dark Empire or Legacy Volume 2. For me, inking couldn't have the same effect. Additionally, considering that nowadays more and more pencilers also ink or do it completely digitally like Douglas Wheatley. Now comes a row of small things. Attached to art, 
Since in most cases I enjoyed the cover of, uh, art of uh, Star Wars comics um, a lot, I really hated the cover bubbles they had for some time. <clears throat> it was funny to hear your first glowing impressions uh, um, of Star Wars subsequently turn into rants throughout the series. And honestly, even taking aside all the continuity issues, the series by far didn't live up to the expectations. In your Dawn of the Jedi reviews, especially into, uh, into the Void, um, I missed the mention of the Adventures of Lenary Brock uh, Jedi Ranger Kindle short story. It isn't included in print form anywhere, is it? Finally, I stumbled upon the usage um, of the term Jedi by a Nikto in Repu Republic Rite of Passage shortly after hearing your first Dawn of the Jedi review. Though I agree mostly with your reviews of the Darth Vader and series, I did disagree with Nathan's comment on the art of Darth Vader in The Last Command. Though art can really distract you from the story, Hello Dark Empire and Legacy Volume 2 once again, I never heard this, uh, had this problem with Darth Vader and the Lost Command. Is there better art? Yes, but I wouldn't go as far as to say it actually distracts from the story. Since my second passion are manga, as already mentioned, I'd love to see a review of the manga produced for Star Wars, so the classic trilogy and episode 1 adaptations, not the photo, photo comics, and the black and silver one-shots, especially since the style of narration in manga is so different than in US or Franco-Belgian comics. I think this could be handled in one session. <clears throat> I'd also love to hear a review of the Infinities adaptations of the classic trilogy. Though all in all I enjoyed them a lot, I felt that here and there it was forced um, to nevertheless follow roughly the story of the films, even with the big game changers altering the course of events. I also hope that you someday review um, the Tales of the Jedi series, though I um, know that quite some arcs are left from the comic series you are covering right now, and please don't stop with any of them, including Dark Times, since I am definitely eager to hear them fulfilled especially for Legacy, my favorite Legends comic series of all time. Coming to Vector, I really really enjoyed your, gran your granted long running, but really delivering approach of reviewing all the series invo involved including Star Wars ongoing slash Republic arcs. Nevertheless, review wise, I missed several stories. Starting with Republic, I missed the Jedi Council miniseries, which I always felt was somehow a part of the Republic series, mostly due to having many of the characters also being part of the Republic series, including Kakrak's first appearance. Come on, Mark, how could you let uh, that slip through? Granted, I know with the Republic coverage you wanted to concentrate on Asharat's head, but then again the hunt for all of Singh was missing as the sole remaining story with him included pre-Clone Wars. Dark, time, uh, dark times wise, um, I definitely missed the Republic two-parter into the unknown, as the introduction of Desgenia. Rebellion-wise, I really missed the other tank samba stories to The Last Man and The Wrong Side of the War from uh, the Empire series, to fully enjoy the delivery of your review of the first Rebellion arc and Samba's fate. Similarly, I missed the Empire stories Princess Warrior, General Skywalker, Alone Together and the bravery of being out of range, and Nomad from Tales to fully grasp the fates of Basil, Abel, Dina Shan, Rasha Bex and Darker Nil. I think much like the Republic coverage due to Asharatet, this would have been more than justified to show at least some character development. I know that back then I enjoyed the Rebellion stories also to a high degree because, all, uh, because of all these wonderfully uh, interwoven story connections. Otherwise, concerning Vector, I remember that um, it drove me nuts that they created 
two trade paperbacks with KOTOR and Dark, Dark Times combined in one and Rebellion and Legacy in the other. Why not three trade paperbacks with, with um, KOTOR and Legacy as standalones and Dark Times and Rebellion combined? Wouldn't it have also made sense timeline-wise to put the latter two together? Since I organized my collection chronologically, these two um, trade paperbacks stick out like sore thumbs, especially in my legacy run, more so in German, since they excluded the vector storyline from the TPP numbering. Wouldn't have three trade paperbacks even be better to make the cow? I just now realize it still drives me nuts. Talking about KOTOR, granted it didn't happen that way in this series, but when you mentioned self-fulfilling prophecies, I immediately thought of the short-lived series Flash Forward, nicely showing how knowing the future can lead exactly to this, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Besides, I wondered how, if at all, the Roland Demagol twist would have played out if the series would have ended um, prematurely, which wasn't that unlikely of late. Would JJM and communications and discussions afterwards never have mentioned this at all? Or were there already too many breadcrumbs laid out? So would it now also stick out like a sore thumb as an unsolved Legends issue? I'm also really looking forward to your coverage of the last Legacy Volume 2 stories. As you once mentioned, I think one of the problems of the series was that we, unlike the first Legacy series, couldn't approach it unspoiled. Due to the first series, there were unavoidably expectations, so in part it was only natural that many people were disappointed if it didn't live, uh, live up to these expectations. Your review of the Star Wars was also enjoyable. I have to admit I could live better with the logically impaired flying um, Wookiees than with the 180 turn of the Sith Lord. I don't know, but maybe it was due to the fact that I already was in a mood to see this only as a historical perspective on our beloved GFFA. However, the art was terrific, up to par with Duas Simmers or uh, Wheatley's art, my two favorite Star Wars comic artists. With Dark Horse having lost the license and retrospective, uh, maybe I shouldn't be anymore, but still I'm rather frustrated that Dark Horse um, focused lately so much on gaining new readers and on accessibility, especially with the Star Wars catastrophe. After all, it was kind of useless, wasn't it? Nonetheless, I wonder how early in advance Dark Horse knew about the license loss and whether or to which extent they really um, could influence the last publications. Without that knowledge, it's really hard to evaluate the last output. Do you think this will ever be revealed by Randy Stedley or someone else? I also wanted to give my opinion on comic formats. I myself became patient over the years and actually wait till the series is published completely, so to enjoy it all at once. Thus collecting preferably, or if possible, in Germany we don't always have the choice, uh, trade paperbacks. And lately I like reading comics digitally on my Galaxy tablet. Not that much for collecting, but the crisp colors and the illumination are unbeatable, especially if your surrounding is dim lit. What I also like about um, uh, trade paperbacks or Omnibuy and digital comics is that initial mistakes can be corrected. Hello Marasia Blue, or was it Elijah Fell? Lastly, I wanted to suggest um, to cover one day Dark Empires, the beginning of the modern EU. I know it's rather controversial, and I myself remember having this, um, being heavily disappointed after finally getting it, because for quite a while it was rather difficult to get it in Germany, and up until then only Nathan's timeline helped me out with summaries. Mostly my impression, I think, was tainted by, um, by the, in my opinion, horrible art, as I mentioned. Well, as far as things to cover, uh, I do think it'd be interesting to cover the mangas. I actually have all the ones that are 
adaptations of the films actually in my back room where I record from the Star Wars home video library now. Uh, you can't see it in those videos, but I actually have the posters up of Kia Asamiya's big poster art of the combined covers of the Phantom Menace manga and a manga-style poster of A New Hope that I think is based off, if I remember right, a, one of the art covers of an issue of Tales. I also do have the black and silver mangas um, sitting on my shelves, which were kind of a pain in the butt to get. So I'd, I'd be up for covering those. Mark, have you read the different uh, manga adaptations or the black and silver? No, see, and that's that's where I'm the the dragger of us down. Uh, Magna's really not been my thing. I've I don't know, like I like Avatar, uh, the Last Airbender, and stuff, but yeah, I'm not really a fan of that style. I guess uh, so. I've never really had any desire. I've seen them a few times. I've walked past them. I kind of treat them like the uh, Clone Wars digest that don't count. <laughs> so yeah, I've always avoided them for the most part. Oh, man, see, I'm the opposite. At one point, I got a bootleg copy. This is before you could actually buy them legitimately. I got a bootleg digital copy of the A New Hope manga adaptation and scanned – well, didn't scan. I, I took the pictures from it and broke it down into individual panels, and I was actually going to use a video-making program that I had to put the sound of the entire movie to the manga art because it's so <laughs> freaking awesome. Uh Needless to say, that would have taken forever, and I eventually decided not to do it. And this was many, 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 many moons ago. I'm sure you could probably do it much more easily now with a digital copy and just, you know, capture the different images of each page like some people do for backups. But I mean, I'd be up for it if at some point Mark wanted to do it. I think they're fantastic, and it annoys me that there was never an Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith manga adaptation. As for the ones in black and silver, they're weird, but interesting in how weird they are. Uh, other stuff to cover, what I would love to cover uh, that you mentioned, Infinity's A New Hope, Infinity's Empire, and Infinity's Return of the Jedi. I think that mm -hmm. is an awesome idea and something actually we should do soon. I'm thinking within the next few months here as part of our various things that we're recording over summer. I'd love to do the Infinity stuff. What do you think? I, I think that would be fun. Um, the problem for me there is I don't have all of them completed. I only have a few of the first two. Uh, actually, I think I've got a few of the first one, and I've got, like, one of the second one. Uh, but, yeah, I love the concept. I love that each one was, in and of itself, its own dedicated little universe and stuff and the themes. Uh, my wife, in fact, uh, of the one with Vader, like, slashing through Luke on Dagobah, she made me this really cool, uh, uh, you know, basically a, a art version that she made. Uh, I just, I love it to death. It's one of the first things she made for me. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not 100% looks just like it, but... I love it to death, man, and it's one of my favorites of those Infinity comics because of that. Dude, go on Amazon. You know how there's those Amazon booksellers that, kind of like Jody and I, they can sell things that already exist in their collection, but put it up on Amazon, and when you go to the Amazon page for that product, it'll have the regular price for the new copy, but also have like a little, you know, buy X amount used starting from price whatever. Mm -hmm. You can find the Star Wars Omnibus Infinities that has all of them in it starting at $4.99 on Amazon right now. Holy Sith. Okay, yeah. So, and, uh, there you I, go. Ooh, yeah, I'm going to have to get on that. <laughs> I'd also be up for Tales of the Jedi at some point because these are classics that actually mattered. I think it'd be different if we were doing something like Ruins of Dantooine. You know, we're just like, oh, <laughs> really? But Tales of the Jedi was very influential and an outstanding story. I, I personally think that Ulick Keldroma, 
I mean, Yuli Keldroma was my favorite Star Wars character until Cade Skywalker, so he is now essentially my second favorite Star Wars character. Um, that'd be a great thing to go back to, and I think part of what makes those important to cover at some point is not only are they done, so it's a limited amount of episodes we would use to cover it, but also the fact that they were so influential and so many people would remember it that it would be a valid element for discussion, as opposed to, say, discussing Marvel's pizzazz comics or something like that that most <laughs> people don't remember, uh, which I am covering as part of that article for Sequart. Now, as for the whole thing with the art credits, um, I am reminded of, again, going back to Kevin Smith, I'm reminded of chasing Amy, right? Amen. If somebody draws something and you draw the same thing, like right on top of it, not going outside the designated original art, what do you call that? Right? It's tracing! Your mother's a tracer! Right? That whole thing. Um, I do find it interesting the way that the credits tend to work these days versus in the past. Now you tend to not actually see individual inkers a lot of times because the artists are tending to do things digitally. So they don't need an inker to go in. So a lot of times the penciler and the inker are the same person, if there's even an inker at all. A lot of times it just says artist. And then your coloring is often done by somebody else still, often a studio doing it digitally. Uh, like, what is it, Soto Color, I think is the name? Let me look here. Um, yeah, Soto Color is who did this remastering of the A New Hope thing for Marvel. And the letters generally don't get that kind of attention. What I do find interesting is the way that Marvel is doing it now. If you actually look at the credits on the cover of a Marvel issue of the Star Wars series, either Darth Vader, Princess Leia, whatever, um, it does have the penciler, or regular artist, whatever you call it, penciler slash anchor, plus the writer, plus the colorist. And I think that's an interesting thing that finally the colorist does get that type of credit. Because in the past, you didn't always see the colorist among the different people on there. I would argue that while that makes sense to include, because it is a big part of the art, I'm not sure that the letterer should be on the cover, because for the most part, unless you're looking at a very unusual style of lettering, comic art lettering feels like it's always kind of the same these days. And in some cases, companies aren't even having a letterer do it, per se. They're just going in and digitally inserting the text when they're doing the coloring and everything else. So, I mean, it, it is a skill, absolutely, but I'm not sure if it's one that necessarily stands out enough that people are going to look at a cover and say, ooh, I want this, it's got this letter. Whereas maybe you'll see that with a colorist, but as they've rightly figured, most of the time people are drawn to the penciler or the writer. I do think, though, that, that if someone did the work, they should be given the credit. I mean, yeah, you got a lot of these programs now where you can get around it and one person's doing it all, but let us know, you know, like put that person's name in all the slots. Uh, Cause as somebody that's just recently in the last two years, been paying attention to who is drawing whom uh, that was one of the, the, the things that I scratched my head about the most. It was like, whose art am I really enjoying here? Am I liking the colorist stuff? Am I liking the inker stuff? You know, do I like the pencilist? What is it that I'm enjoying the most? I mean, I know I like Jan Derisma stuff. I mean, I, I love it to death, uh, but you know, when I get to other stuff, I'm like, you know, where is the point that I need to be checking? You know, is which is the one that I want to be looking for? Am I, am I paying attention to the inker, the colorist, the artist in general? Uh, you know, and, and how does that affect things? Because there have been comics where I'll go from one where I'm like, I love this guy's style. And I go to another one. It's the same guy, but he's got someone else that's doing the other stuff. And it's like, what the heck is this? And it's that understanding 
that when I go to the front cover and it's got it all and it says, okay, this person did that and this person did this, I'm like, oh, there's more than one person on this one. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But when that person does it and they don't put anything up there at all, you, you just, you have no way to inform yourself. You can't be educated because they took that from you. The opportunity is gone. So it's like, if they've done it, give them the credit at least. But it needs to be in a situation where, you know, whoever's getting credit, at least on the cover, whoever is headlined is a role that necessarily is going to have a big impact on what you're seeing. I mean, of course, mm-hmm. they're getting the credit inside the book on the credits page, but it's like a movie, right? When the movie starts and you're running through, you know, who's starring in it, guest stars, uh, if it's a TV show, for instance, the director, the writer, uh, principal photography, all that kind of stuff, that stuff will show up at the beginning. But then stuff like production assistant, second unit director and stuff like that, they'll get their credit, but they're getting their credits in the credits at the end. Not everybody who merits a mention in the credits at the end merits a mention in the credits at the beginning or on the posters for the movie. Yeah, true that. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about before we leave this one uh, is the Kukrok angle. Yes, I, I am aware that we haven't touched that one yet, and I hope to get to Jedi Council Acts of War at some point. Uh, the Tales one... I actually I'm excited about Tails. Uh, the problem there is I've got to hunt down the omnibuses on some of those too because I've only got a few of the trades and a few of the single issues, um, so I don't have the completed story. And I know that there are some stories in there that actually made it into Legends eventually. So you know there is some stuff there that I I'm just interested to know about in general. Um, the other one that that I'm, I'm curious with Nathan because I know he didn't really care for Kotor War. Uh, you'd mentioned something about would the the Roland Demigal arc have worked it, had we not gone farther with war, with everything we had gotten before that. Would the Demigal and what he was doing and stuff would that angle have been enough minus war? And I don't know. I think I think me and Nathan are probably going to disagree on here. And I think that in that angle, war was needed. It was needed to kind of give us that last little bit about what Demigal was doing and give us that last little insight to those events. Uh, what What about you, Nate? What do you think? I am the opposite. I think the Demigal story was wrapped up very well in the pages of regular KOTOR in terms of what he wanted to do, what he was trying to do. You didn't need to see hackneyed, crappy Mandalorian knights, Jedi who jump ship to the other side and everything in KOTOR War to make the Demigal story work. If anything, it undermines Demigal's plans and what he wanted because he wanted to essentially create Mandalorian knights as opposed to having it be Jedi who jump ship. If the whole point was, we just want Jedi to jump ship to the Mandalorians, you didn't need Demigol to be working on that project in the first place. What you needed was a good PR campaign, you know? Come to the Mandalorians, (laughs) we have cookies. (laughs) The Force is strong with us now. Ever wonder about that prohibition against attachments and, well, booty calls? Come to the Mandalorians! (laughs) I almost said come with the Mandalorians, but that would have been a bad play on words. So, again, a few things mentioned here. One... Uh, Vector, the idea that Vector should have been perhaps split into three trade paperbacks. KOTOR gets one, Legacy gets one, and then in between you've got Rebellion and Dark Times getting one themselves. Thank goodness this was not suggested to Dark Horse at the time because they would have been able to charge us yet again for more Vector stuff. But I do think it would have been cleaner to have it available that way within our collections. But then again, if we just want those, I believe there's omnibus editions we could pick up to get that part of Vector without the other parts of Vector having to be lumped in with it. But it certainly does look odd in a collection. Um, Speaking of those series, you mentioned some of the things that we've covered versus not. At some point, we really do need to sit down and catalog what we have and haven't covered (laughs) within our stuff. I know I've got that on the Star Wars timeline goal as part of that 
Nathan Butler timeline, where it's sort of like a timeline of my releases. I include this show and what we cover in each episode, but you need almost a checklist to see what we haven't covered to make sure we do get a chance to finish covering everything. Um, yeah, we need a wiki. <laughs> as far as trade paperbacks, I personally can't do trade paperbacks just because I try to keep up with everything at the moment for the Star Wars Timeline Gold, although now I guess that I'm getting digital copies to read it immediately and then the physical copies, I could switch to trade paperbacks because I've already got the digital copies to check out. It's just not something that fits the way my uh, my particular collecting style works. And lastly, this question of Dark Horse focus so much on accessibility and whether or not it turns out that was kind of futile anyway because it wound up having them the, lose the license and the license go to Marvel. I definitely think that this whole idea of accessibility in Star Wars, at least for Dark Horse, not so much for Del Rey with Razor's Edge, although it sucked, um, but with Dark Horse especially, it was like this last gasp at trying to increase their readership for the brand, only to wind up having it not matter. Not only did it fail, I think, because of giving up on continuity and giving up in a lot of ways on good storytelling, <coughs> Brian Wood, to try to bring new people in, but yeah. As soon as the, the they jump ship, the license jump ship over to Marvel, it was pointless anyway. Even if they had brought in a ton of new readership, it would have been readership for another company and not done Dark Horse any real good. Which, as he mentions, does beg the question, when did they know? It sounds like basically Dark Horse only found out very shortly before the announcement was made that it was jumping to Marvel. And that there was no discussion. It was just, that's it. Fate accompli. Done. Right, And then Marvel had its whole thing of making it sound like they won back the license, which is bull. It was just because they happened to be owned by Disney. Um, it doesn't seem like there was much of a lead-up, so they were probably actually really trying to build up a new audience for themselves, only to wind up having it prove to be futile. Otherwise, it almost feels like a last gasp at trying to keep the license when there's no way that was going to happen. Because Disney owns Marvel, and they don't have to share the profits that way. When did Dark Horse find out? When they were emailed the direct link to StarWars.com's article on April 2014. <laughs> what is this? Could you just imagine? Uh, you know what I got to say about accessibility? Screw accessibility. You want accessibility? Watch the films and the TV shows. Because honestly, as an EU fan watching them crap all over good stories just to try to bring in new fans... At the end of the day, casual fans, they're there. And guess what? They don't give a crap about our books and our comics. Point in, ah, so bad. Point in example is that freaking article where they're calling the new stuff Expanded Universe. The casual fans are going to crap all over the books and comics and are going to still crap all over the books and comics. That's not necessarily a problem. I have friends in the 501st. They don't like books and comics. Okay. I can accept that. But marketing to them to try to get them to change their mind, it ain't going to happen. So screw accessibility. Just tell me good stories. Yeah, it's like the old field of dreams, right? If you build it, they will come. If you tell a good story, they will come and read it. It doesn't matter whether it's seeped in continuity or not. They will be drawn to it. I see the point of accessibility, but... Yeah, you're you're pandering to an audience that if they weren't already into it, probably weren't going to get into it. You weren't going to see the same kind of diehard, constant readers coming out of these new readers and otherwise. Maybe now with the new canon, but 
not in accessibility when you would say, see, look, come in and read Star Wars Volume 2. It's so accessible. Now read the rest of our library. Nope, nope, it's still difficult to get into because of all the previously existing continuity. So you'd be bringing new people in only to read these new things, which I guess works if they're only counting their profits based on the new things and don't expect a lot of copies of older materials in their back catalog to sell. Uh, as for, you know, maybe they found out by it showing up on StarWars.com, hey, if our president can constantly be telling us, well, you know, I found out about what happened in Benghazi when it was on the news. I found out about the whole thing with, with Hillary Clinton and the emails when it was on the news. I found out about the IRS targeting Tea Party groups when it was on the news. If our president can be so either out of touch or full of shit that he's constantly telling us that all these big scandals that break, he only found out about because it was on the news. Surely Dark Horse could have only found out about losing the license by seeing it on StarWars.com. I would not put it past them uh, as far as that goes. But again, that delves into my deep distrust for politicians, possibly due to <laughs> growing up with the thought of Palpatine, perhaps. <laughs> as to Mark's comment about screw accessibility, uh, we should probably clarify, we do not mean, we do not like the idea of ramps for wheelchairs and things like that. Not that kind of accessibility, folks. <laughs> he is not discriminatory or whatever you call that prejudice against people who need accommodations uh all right this leads us into his part four part four books first thing here if you do book reviews i would like to see also the book covers covered granted they are not as elaborate as comic covers but sometimes they are nonetheless quite interesting you might even, if possible, give a quick take on the Japanese covers. They are simply gorgeous. Many of them can be found on Wikipedia. That's uh, what I also love about all the great essential guidebooks. The visual interpretation of things so far, far only covered by written word. Maybe that's worth an episode by itself. What do you think? This, is also, this also holds true concerning the um, New Jedi Order era for the Invasion comic series, regardless of what uh, one else might think of the series. Speaking of which, I highly encourage you to cover um, one day this book series. And if you do so, please treat it as an era, include also the various ebooks and short stories, the Invasion comic series, and of course equals and opposites. When you talked about Aaron Elston, <clears throat> you repeatedly emphasized um, how few novels he wrote. That was kind of weird, since with 13 novels he easily outweighs, for example, Lucino's Deckpole with 9 or 8, respectively full novels, and Stover by far with only 5. And I think many would support the opinion that the latter ones have left equally or at least somewhat deep impressions in Legends. Since I stumbled upon the following, <coughs> recently um, starting to hear to the EU review, Nathan's former Legends podcast with Andrew Lupi, by the way, go grab it, it's also fun to listen to, you ask yourself whether the audiobook of Death Troopers might try to convey a horror feeling. Did it so? Was there anything in this direction? As mentioned in another feedback part, I read um, all the prequel novelizations before seeing the movies. And I always liked episode 3 and couldn't fully grasp why it was bashed so much. But now, after having heard a new podcast of such a thing as um, the Stover effect, honestly I somehow didn't stumble upon earlier, this explains a lot, I think. Speaking of the Stover effect, in the EU review you described a similar effect on episode 2 on a smaller scale due to Carol Miller's Wild Space. Since I didn't read this one as most of the, um, the Clone Wars Legends material, can you please answer the following question? 
Other scenes tying into episode 2 en bloc at the beginning of the novel, so I can read only this part, or are they interspersed throughout the book? One quick comment on the um, Jedi Academy books by Jeffrey Brown. If you like comedic takes on Star Wars, give them a try. Actually, they are quite funny and full of nice ideas with quite some attention to details. Here, as with comics, um, I'd also like to give my two cents about formats. With books too, I'm by now fond of reading books digitally on my Kindle. Again, not for collecting, um, but simply for um, enjoyment without having to carry clumsy books all along. And with the e-ink technology, you seldomly have to charge the device. Um, regarding different ebook formats and whether they can be used or read by the devices in the future, isn't for example Amazon a typical company too big to fail? So I expect that at least the Mobi format will be around for quite some time, or will be at least uh, convertible in the foreseeable future. By the way, Calibre is, is a wonderful free software to handle and also easily convert different ebook formats. Lastly here, as with the comics, I would love to see coverage of uh, the first modern EU books, the Throne Trilogy, which I still, um, are, I think, are my uh, favorite Legends books. You know, the question of whether or not to cover the book covers, for some reason that's just really never been something that's on our radar, but I guess we should if we're covering the comic covers, the book covers deserve um, some comment, although sometimes you have significant differences, like with Courtship of Princess Leia, for instance, between paperback and hardback, but thankfully not very often. Uh, as to Death Troopers as an audiobook, I've never heard it, if it even exists, so I can't speak to whether or not it had a horror vibe. I think hopefully it would have. To Attack of the Clones and Wild Space, the first three chapters of Wild Space are the ones that take place immediately after the bulk of Attack of the Clones, before Anakin and Padme get married on Naboo. And they're excellent sequences. Those by themselves make the at least that part of the book worth reading. Sadly, the rest of it is a continuity mess because of the way that they changed the order of Clone Wars episodes from what they planned on versus uh, what eventually they said was actual continuity. Uh, as for Alston, I don't remember us putting an emphasis on how few novels Alston had. It's probably me, probably just talking about how few he had that were his own as opposed to part of a series. Um, but okay, I'll, I'll take your point on that. As to the Stover effect and not having heard the term Stover effect before hearing it on the show here, um, there may be a reason for that. It's because I made it up. The term Stover effect is a term that I came up with to describe how watching Revenge of the Sith felt different having already read Stover's novelization of it. And it's something I've used and applied in other aspects as something similar with other authors. The idea of getting more out of a particular piece of material because of something you've read previously that was an adaptation that went deeper on that material. So, not surprised if you haven't heard it prior to this show or perhaps prior to the EU review. I don't remember when I started using it because it's just a term that I made up to give us a shorthand uh, for that concept. Yeah, the Stover effect as a, as a word, it works perfectly. In fact, I, you should probably write an article about it on starwarsreport.com. I think that would be uh, something that might get a lot of uh, views because I, I think a lot of people out there would appreciate that as just, a, you know, you know, you hear that ring theory and stuff. And I think the Stover effect is, is absolutely true. I mean, when we watch the film, you know, the film's good, but when you've read that book and then you go back, I mean, I think that's the one aspect of why I'm upset that the novelization for The Force Awakens is only coming out on ebook the day of, and that the actual novel's coming a month later. Because 
I really got the most out of seeing episode three because of the Stover effect of that book. That book put so much in the background that was not there in my mind that, that I wasn't even upset. It wasn't there. You know, I was just like, Oh, what, what, why isn't all the Padme stuff here? But I had that information. So I was okay with it not being there. I just felt bad for everyone else who didn't know. Cause I was like, Oh man, that was some good stuff. That should have been in the story. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, if you ever had some time that make for a very interesting article. When it comes to the covers, though, uh, I actually had a thought on that because I, I had thought about that off and on. And now now that you've mentioned, you know, why aren't we doing it and that maybe we should not only I, do I think we probably should from here on out, but I think it'd be kind of a cool opportunity for us to go back and do a couple episodes where we're just catching up on the covers of the ones that we had already done and missed, uh, you know, and talk about them, have a whole episode dedicated to those covers and then get us caught up where everyone we're doing from now on. We do like the comics where we have a cover in the cover spot at the end because some of the covers, especially like with the new Jedi Order and stuff, when you get the uh, the different covers from the different, uh, you know, countries and stuff, the Japanese covers are just glorious and stuff. But that's the other realm of it is, you know, which covers do we cover? Because there are so many different versions, German covers and, and all sorts of other, you know, countries that have their own versions of it and stuff. It's like, where would we draw the line would be the next question me and Nate would have to definitely think about, uh, you know, maybe we just stick to the ones that are in the U S or something like that, or occasionally touching on some other ones. But uh, yeah, that's something we'll have to think about. And it definitely has merit because it is something that we are talking about in general. Uh, and that's the uh, same goes with the essential guides. I think we did talk about the essential guide to warfare uh, when that one came out, but I think that's the only one we've actually covered on an episode. I don't know. Again, this is one where I know I've covered essential guides in detail before at some point somewhere but i honestly don't remember where it was death troopers i it, there is an audiobook uh i was listening to it but unfortunately it's just a, an audio sample and i didn't want to use my extra credit on that one yet because i i've already read the book so i i really didn't want to go back and, and reread that one just to find out that answer uh but from the part that they had it did have some creepy like music and stuff and from everything i've known from the audiobooks and stuff they do find ways to maximize the music cues and stuff. Like if someone's about to die and stuff, they'll pick the right music and stuff. So you'd see a lot of like the, uh, the opera theme with the, Oh, kind of stuff in the background. Uh, so I, I, I want to say I'm leaning really close to saying, yeah, it, it conveys creepiness. Uh, you know, I only had that 30 or 40 second little clip, but from what I heard there and from what I know about the other audiobooks, I, I couldn't imagine it not being able to convey that creepiness. Now that brings us to an addendum that he did send in for part four, just to clarify something he said a moment ago. Part four, books, a little addendum. After recently hearing the EU Review's discussion of the Lightsaber Rattlings novel per author count article, with Aaron Elson being on top of the list, a fact I somehow didn't realize when assembling my numbers for the main part, I wonder even more about the emphasis on his few novels. Or was it as an author in general? And now finally, the last piece he sent in, part 5. Part 5. Miscellaneous, finally. First of all, I would die to hear an episode about, about the big unsolved EU slash legends uh, issues by you, as you already hinted at. Please don't wait too long with it to avoid heart attacks on my side. When you covered The Last Jedi, I immediately started to ponder about strong force users in general, specifically in comparison to The Chosen One. Another nice example was of course shown in The Force, <coughs> force Unleashed with Starkill. 
Granted, it was to some degree introduced to allow certain game mechanics. But nonetheless, do you think all the powered up force users diminish the role of Anakin as the chosen one? Because <clears throat> basically from what we saw on screen, whether in movies or in the Clone Wars, his force abilities seem to be rather lame compared to others. What do we th think about the cancellation of detours? I asked specifically because as far as I remember, um, Seth Green himself explained in an interview that it was cancelled so that new fans get an, can get an unaltered view of the classic trilogy and its char characters, and not a comedic one. But hey, what about the Yoda Chronicles? Is the representation of Vader and Palpatine that different from what we uh, would have seen with Detours, from what we know from the trailers? So I hope rumors are true and it will be released digitally. Some short things. A quick backlash to my last feedback. I meant personal canon, literally, for me personally, and not using it in an intellectually dishonest way in discussions. I wasn't aware of the uh, quote-unquote historical freight this term carries around. It was hilarious when Mark mentioned to one of his family members, five more minutes, and you kept talking for half an hour or so. It's funny to see that you sometimes talk about things you like much shorter than about crap. Look for example at the Kenobi episode, episode with roughly one hour and the Darth Vader and the lack of, uh, lack of plot episode with nearly two hours. <clears throat> I really like the music fragments that were um, interspersed recently. Please more of this or other audio tidbits. Another suggestion for an episode discussing the um, CCG from Decipher or the TCG from uh, Withers of the Coast or both. I would like to hear your comments especially on the Decipher CCG, if possible, since it was such a bang at its time. Ed Nathan, are you planning on updating the Star Wars Fanworks website someday in the near future? I think some of the podcast links are dead and I specifically ask because I search for the Star Wars Action News Book Club podcast, which seems to be unavailable also on the Star Wars Action News website itself. And I also, uh, also find the idea of a timeline app very intriguing. I definitely encourage you to pursue such a project. Sometimes I get the impression that your regard of Wikipedia isn't that high. Though it is definitely flawed, I personally think it's nevertheless a wonderful first source of information to get oriented and to look up some facts like publication dates or, or the like. Since uh, it is not much, I also include here the few points I have about Rebels. First I now also subscribe to Rebels Roundtables. Nice show guys, keep going, though I definitely missed Mark on the first episodes. Second, when I heard the, the Empire Day uh, version of the Imperial March, I immediately had to think about Nathan's marriage. Wouldn't that perfectly fit a marriage? Phew, so finally I am at the end. But it was definitely fun recording. And once again I hope I didn't annoy you too much. And I'll definitely stay tuned and enjoy your wonderful show. Keep up the great work and may the force be with you always. Your Alex K from Germany. All right, well, the quick ones here first. Uh, will FanWorks be updated in the near future? Probably not. It has been streamlined and stripped down so that I don't have to update it. For the most part, I believe the links to the stuff that still exist works. But, yeah, uh, you'll find stuff like Star Wars Action News Book Club podcast. That one, if it ever comes back, I, I think the, the files are buried somewhere on SWActionNews.com. Uh, that's where it'll point, so that's where the link goes to at this point. But, no, I'm not constantly checking that thing. It's just sort of there. You know, FanWorks. Honestly, if it wasn't for all the email addresses I had going through FanWorks and that that's where the timeline is hosted, I actually thought about dropping 
the domain name and just using something else, just going through NathanPbutler.com or something, since it's the same account essentially, but might as well keep the domain name as it is for the moment. Uh, as for Wikipedia, I do agree. It's a great resource for general references. It's the nitpicky specifics and some of their policies on where they get their information from and what they can and can't count as valid that drive me nuts. Um, Wikipedia, like any wiki, is only as good as those contributing to it, and there are a lot of great dedicated fans contributing to it. But you've also got people with their own personal canon mindsets, incorrect perceptions about what is or is not true based on Lucasfilm's uh, view of the saga, uh, incorrect facts about things that come, say, from Leland Chi or Pablo Hidalgo that don't get clarified in an email or something, so they can't, or at least an email to Wikipedia, so they can't actually be used. Um, it's the nature of a wiki to be something with good information, but you must always be skeptical about what you're seeing. It just so happens that I am big on the nitpicky side of things and the chronological side of things, and those happen to be areas where they have the biggest issues when it comes to concerns about the validity of the information that they're using, gathering, and the sources that they're going from versus people just pushing their own perceptions into it, even if they don't line up with reality. Well, and one of those, the classic examples I love is the planet Yuzantar. You go and look that up and you get, this is an article about the original homeworld of the Yuzanvong species. You may be looking for Yuzantar during the Yuzanvong War. Well, the problem with that was, was that Yuzantar was the name that they named Coruscant during the New Jedi Order, which is that second reference they're talking about. And they named it that because they didn't know the name of the homeworld. It was lost to time. So they went with Yuzantar, which meant Kresh of the Gods. But yet, Wiki will tell you over and over again that that was the same name on their home planet. It was like, no, no, they were specific in that story. The home planet's name was lost to time. But somebody still hasn't fixed that Wiki entry. And so everybody going there is getting inaccurate information based on someone else's assumption of what they read in that book. That's, you know, Nate, you said it right at the beginning, but that is the heart of what you have to be aware of when you're reading the things from the Wick. That the, the Wick doesn't always have it necessarily 100% accurate. And a lot of times people will run to that to solve their online debates and arguments and you got to remember that, that sometimes it's just the person's point of view and how they wrote the article. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's also, I mean, again, the nature of a wiki of any kind is that it can be changed by anyone, and that makes the information constantly suspect. I mean, look on Wikipedia, regular Wikipedia, on any page around an election based on a politician in that election. You will see those things changing and being redacted and changed back constantly because people are trying to use their own agendas and perceptions of candidates to alter those pages and shape public perception because, as I find with my students much of the time, there's this belief that, well, it was on the internet, it must be true. No! No, it doesn't. Perfect example of how you can't trust the internet and why students, for instance, need to be concerned. Uh, there's a website, allaboutexplorers.com. I'm going to go to allaboutexplorers.com slash explorers slash Magellan. It is a page dedicated to... Uh, all these different explorers from the age of exploration, right? 14 and 1500s and such. And you find out a lot of interesting things, for instance. Uh, Magellan is best known as the first person to travel completely around the globe. Of course, that's what he's known for. Granted, it was his crew, not him. He died right before that uh, could happen, blah, blah, blah. But then you get this paragraph. Early in his career, Magellan was first a soldier. During the Battle of Hastings, 
Magellan was seriously injured. His leg had to be amputated as a result. The wooden leg that replaced it never fit in properly, and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. He also lost an eye after being shot by an AK-47 during the same battle. <laughs> this is a website designed specifically so that if a student goes there to use it, you can tell they plagiarized, and I've had students use it. <laughs> the website is designed, it's, there's an about, there's a four teachers section of how you should use this to teach kids not to simply trust whatever it is. Uh, uh, for instance, it was not long before King Ferdinand of Spain noticed this rising star, still talking about Magellan, with whom he shared a name. In 1519, at the age of only 27, the king enlisted the support of several wealthy businessmen, including Marco Polo, Bill Gates, and Sam Walton of Walmart to finance the expedition to the Spice Islands. <laughs> It's just one of those. I could just see the kid now. What? What? That's that's legit. It was on the internet. I swear. That's. I did the research, man. I was in my computer for four hours. That research happened, man. That the the I found it on the internet, so it must be true. Is the reason why I had a student at one point turn in a research paper telling me that the Gulf War. I forget the exact dates. It was like the Gulf War began in 1991 and ended in 1988 or something. <laughs> yes, because because it was a war fought backward in time. Was Doctor Who involved, perhaps? <laughs> they were weapons of mass time travel. <laughs> Chronological destruction. Uh, so, <laughs> yes, uh, just be wary of any kind of Wikipedia type thing, whether it's Wikipedia or anything else, because of just the nature of it. But if you recognize the nature of it, they can be good sources of information. Chronological destruction. That That's what they should have called the Clone Wars. <laughs> weapons of chronological destruction. That's when you need, like, a SHIELD-type acronym, like Strategic Homeland, blah, 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 except make it so that the, uh, the acronym spells Lucas, or Filoni, or Ahsoka. <laughs> or Continuity. <laughs> or Voss. <laughs> Greedo. We said Greedo. And then you can use that We Said Greedo anytime they're just going to go in and screw up Continuity. Star Wars Volume 2. The heroes before they were legends. Yes, we said Greedo. And Greedo would actually <laughs> mean, it, mean something. All right, uh, as for the music, uh, yeah, it would have been very cool to use that Imperial March variant from Rebels in Our Wedding. Sadly, it came to be years after the wedding had already happened, or at least a year plus after the wedding had already happened. Um, but yeah, that would have been cool to do. We actually also thought about using that Imperial March variant that's at the end of Attack of the Clones for it. But instead, she she really wanted that kind of darker, dan, 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 you know, as she's marching down the aisle, which, you know, was cool. For those who didn't, who have no idea what we're talking about, in my wedding... When Jody walked down the aisle, it was here comes the bride, but then it gets to a point where it stops and switches immediately into the Imperial March that she marched the rest of the way down to the aisle with. It was all uh, Star Wars-based music at the wedding, like Across the Stars during the recessional and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> As to the other things here, um, yes, we can spend more time on crap than talking about the good stuff, and I think part of that is because... With the good stuff, we don't want to come off sounding like we're just butt-kissing, praising everything. And I think a lot of times that's what it sounds like when we're praising something. Whereas with critiques, there's more room to go off on tangents and dig into why certain things that didn't work didn't work, what they could have done better, what could have been done as an alternative solution. So it tends to be that things that have a level of criticism, especially if they can create little mini rants, wind up sucking up more time than the good stuff. At least that's been my experience. See, and I think I'm coming from it from a different angle. I think 
when it comes to the stuff we love, we want you to grab the book and read it. So we're not going to spoil it too much. We want to leave some surprises. We want you to have the same experience. But when it's something we hated, we want you to stay the hell away from it. So it's like, <laughs> this is why this and that and this and that and all those bodies over there. And this is just wrong. Like, you know. Yeah, like we're, we might not describe in detail for you what it feels like in the chemical process of, say, drinking Dr. Pepper, but we'll make sure you know all the nitpicky details about, say, syphilis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the fact that so many comedians make a living off of selling a certain type of hate, uh, that there's a certain type of humor involved. And I think that that's kind of where we channel when we get to those episodes we really are kind of hating on, you know, like Darth Vader and the lack of plot. It's like, it was so bad, it was almost funny. You know, like, you're really selling this to us? Like, but granted, there, you know, fandom is so big that, yes, there are other opinions out there. And, and you know, I mean, I think that that's the important thing. That just because we're not liking something doesn't mean that we, we think less of fans that did like it or, you know, think, you know, less of that product. Although we probably will think less of the story of the product or the art of the product or, you know, there's there's so many levels to it. And I think we can focus on that and pay attention to that. But I really, truly think at the end of the day, the love and the hate, the real reason why you get so little of the love is that we want you to experience it. And while we want to spoil it at the same time, if we spoil it too much, you're not going to have that same love. You're going to be like, oh, it was okay. Yeah. And seriously, if we bashed people for loving things that we didn't like, then we'd be the, Oh wait, I almost named that podcast. Didn't I? People out there going, Ooh, which was he talking about? Whereas plenty of people in on to be like, yep, I know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> As for detours, yeah, I was sad to see it go. I think the excuse they gave about, well, you don't want a, a parody-type version of the classic trilogy to be what some people are introduced to. Um, they need to see the actual films because it's the backdrop for which can eventually be Episode Seven. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think that was a lame excuse for why they ended the idea of detours, especially if they are going to have Yoda Chronicles and stuff like that still out there. Although, their argument, I'm sure, would be, yeah, but if it's a Lego story, of course they know that it's not supposed to be interpreted as serious, because it's Legos. Whereas my argument would be, of course Detours isn't supposed to be taken seriously. It's freaking robot chicken style stuff. And if you saw the way that they did the characters in the animation of the preview stuff, they didn't look real, so to speak, either. I would yeah. argue that Detours is less at least from what I saw, Detour certainly seems less like it had much of a story to it and would be taken seriously than the Yoda Chronicles stuff because that stuff does have an ongoing story. Yeah, the the look of Vader especially, it, I don't know, it, it screamed Infinities. And I don't see why they can't just continue to use that label for certain stories like that. Uh, I, I think the fandom can totally roll with that, uh, especially with Yoda Chronicles out there. That Yoda Chronicles existing, and yeah, you know, you nail it with the with the Lego aspect. But I, I Bullseth, man, if that one can exist, there's no reason why why detours couldn't. Uh, you know, and, and the robot chicken aspect, you're gonna still see Star Wars stuff on robot chicken. So I mean, the humor's not going away. Kind of feels to me like Disney has a problem with parody style criticism of their materials of the things that they own. They can produce stuff that is such crap in quality that it's basically a self-parody, like some of the, the cartoons they've done off of Marvel properties in the past, but they can't accept it when other people necessarily do it. They're, they're, they're very overly sensitive 
about that sort of thing, which is why it's up to the internet to do things like the the Frozen parodies, like, will you help me hide a body? You know, or, or F it all instead of let it go. Uh, because you're not going to see Disney necessarily poking fun at itself like that, which is funny because a lot of the creators behind Star Wars have tended to like poking fun at themselves. But I'm not sure that Disney is willing to do that. It's like somehow they think that their massive you know, financial empire will implode if people don't take them seriously. But it's because they take themselves so seriously that so many people don't take them seriously. Yeah, it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Uh, you know, another question you had was was the powered up force users, you know, like Starkiller and, and stuff like that. And whether or not they diminish Darth Vader since he doesn't appear so powered up in the films. And to that, I say no. I, I think it, it comes down to he lost a lot of metachlorines when he lost all those body parts. Uh, you know, I think the dark side is compensating for that loss. You know, he's able to make up for it. But imagine how much more powerful Vader would have been had he been full in body. I, and in fact, I believe this was one of the points that Lamaya had brought up to uh, Jason in Legacy of the Force. You know, I mean, if you had more of the cells and those cells are what connect you to the Force and allow you to draw on it and give you the power, as Lucas once said, then by losing whole body parts filled with those cells, filled with those metachlorians, has to at some level affect you. Uh, and that's where I, I truly, I think, yeah, he's able to compensate with the dark side, the power of the dark side to kind of make up for what he's lost. But yeah, imagine how much more powerful he would have been. I think you'd have been seeing a lot more things of the star killer size and stuff. I mean, uh, could you just, I mean that, how cool would it have been to have gotten infinity's revenge of the Sith where Obi-Wan died on Mustafar? I mean, and Anakin never got put in the armor and he was always the chosen one body as Darth Vader. I think that would have been a really cool story to see as an infinity. You mean like the alternate ending to the Revenge of the Sith video game? Yeah! That's exactly what that was. Um, I gotta say, it, the whole idea of he lost a bunch of midichlorians because of how much of his body was gone always still rings a little weird to me. I mean, I get the idea that you have a certain number of midichlorians in your cells, and the more the concentration is, that helps determine how powerful you are and that sort of thing. So the more cells you would have, the more midichlorians you have, etc., etc. Um, but it just... The logic of it starts to be frustrating. I mean, I get the idea that the less biological you are, the less living you are, the less connection you would have to an energy field that is created by all living things. That makes sense to an extent. But if it's about the number of cells you have, then Yoda needed that extremely high concentration of midichlorians that they talk about. You know, not even Yoda has one that high, so Yoda must have been pretty high for that to have been the benchmark they were setting. Because Yoda's mm. freaking tiny. By definition, then, a Rancor that is Force-sensitive should be the most powerful Jedi ever, as Anakin put it, because he's so stinking huge, right? You know, judge me by my size, do you? Well, apparently, your size determines how many cells you have, and that may determine how many midichlorians you have, so damn straight I judge you by your size. I don't think that's where they were wanting to go with that. Although with Vader, you gotta wonder, you know, how much of him is still biological, but that goes into Barrett's whole thing about fire victims from... Reference roundtable that I really don't think we should get into again. Uh, if you haven't gone to the Facebook page and gotten the link to download that standalone set of really off-color bloopers from our season wrap-up of Rebels Roundtable, you probably should, but it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, Barrett mm -hmm. apparently is checking something on dead bodies that are burnt when he was an EMT that uh, gave us new insights into Vader, but but also new fears about Barrett's sanity. Um <laughs> 
The other thing I would say about it, though, is I'm not sure that it diminishes Anakin as the Chosen One based on all these other powerful Force users. The fact that there are other powerful Force users, yeah, it does eventually strain credulity on things like how Luke could have been the last and whatnot. I'm still wondering, you know, where are Kanan and Ezra by the time of A New Hope? Where's Ahsoka by the time of A New Hope and all? Uh, hopefully we'll see Rebels answer that question. But to me, the Chosen One was more of a role than a power set. Just because you're super powerful doesn't necessarily make you the chosen one. Palpatine wasn't the chosen one, and he's incredibly powerful. Yoda wasn't the chosen one. The chosen one, again, depending on which source you're looking at and what Lucas was saying at the time, is a role. Now, the role may mean something different depending on Lucas's interpretation at the time, but it was always, you know, the chosen one is destined to do such and such, whether it's bring balance to the Force and destroy the Sith, as the Jedi are thinking, or he's supposed to bring balance on Mortis and then therefore help maintain balance throughout the galaxy, as we saw back in the Clone Wars. However you want to interpret it, it's a role. I mean, it, just because someone is an extremely skilled, say, warrior or politician in real life doesn't mean they're necessarily going to fill the role of the Khan of Khans, Genghis Khan, for instance, or that they're going to fill the role of De Fuhrer in, in Germany, and in either case have such a devastating impact on the world around them. Um, it, it, it's, it's a differentiation between the two. Because the Chosen One and them thinking he was the Chosen One is tied so much into how many midichlorians he had, how powerful he was, and the idea of him perhaps being born of the midichlorians, I think it's easy to attribute the idea that Chosen One is about power, not a role. But remember, they weren't using... It, it wasn't like, oh... He has a bunch of midichlorians. He has a ton. He must be the chosen one. That's not what it was. Yeah. It was he has a ton of oh, midichlorians. Daddy. Yeah, which makes us think he may have been born of the midichlorians, and it's someone born of the midichlorians that's supposed to be the chosen one. They were using the power level and midichlorian level to determine a different fact, and that fact was used to try to determine the role, rather than the power level determining the role by itself, if that makes well, sense. Another angle of this, and and this angle may have changed now that Star Killer and, and the Force Unleashed is all legends. Uh, but I was under the impression that the part of the reason why Star Killer was so powerful was because all the Force users, but Vader and Palpatine, were dead, and no one was using the Force, and therefore the Force was responding exponentially to anybody reaching out and touching it because it hadn't been used at all. So it was kind of rushing in to fill that void kind of thing, and therefore everything was unleashed. Uh, and so, I mean, I don't know if that's still something they were planning. Uh, you know, that's that one theory I, I have about the lightsabers, you know, do the flickers of the lightsabers have something to do with the, you know, the Jedi not using the force as much is that, you know, the, the connection to the Jedi and the force and that's how it's represented, you know, during the, uh, the prequel trilogy, all the lightsabers are solid because the Jedi are there. They're a force for good. But during the original trilogy, they're gone. Therefore the, the connection for the Jedi is flickering. It's almost died out. You know, that angle of what's going on with the force. It's all up in the air. I mean, they could totally decide that that whole angle of the force unleashed being, you know, it's, it's unleashed because no one's using it. Oh, that's just a total legends thing. Or that could be the direction they decide to go with, with the force. You know, that, that has always been an un, uh, un locked in thing when it comes to Canon and the EU already, you know, it was, it was one of those things where when it happened in the force unleashed, everyone was like, Oh, well, this is a George Lucas project. But then it became Legends, so, you know, we're still on that, well, is that the plan that they have for the Force, or is that something that they're going to totally disregard and go with a new route? 
Okay, I have to step back and pull a minions from Despicable Me. What? You completely lost me. I have never heard any of those theories whatsoever. The lightsaber flickering thing and the idea that there's only, you know, a few Force users, so the Force is responding exponentially to the ones that there are. I don't think I've ever heard either of those theories ever, and I can't imagine that any of them are actually within the Legends continuity, unless I really skipped over something important in the Force Unleashed novelization or something. The, the flickering of the lightsaber is something that I've been thinking about since Filoni had talked about it for Rebels. Uh, you know, they they talked about bridging that, and that but, was the question... It was it was because of the technological limitations of the way they did the special effects before. There's, there isn't Absolutely. an in-universe explanation for that at all, is there? Not that we have. I mean, that that is the actual reality. Uh, but there's two angles you could go with here. You could say, okay, well, the lightsabers were flickering because their batteries were dying, which then it comes down to, well, why don't you recharge it? Or it has something to do with that mystical connection with the Force. Uh, you know, and, and they might pollution. not ever be going in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's too it's it's Chewie's farts. That's what's going on in there. Too much, uh, too much of that uh, carbon monoxide in the air. It's causing the lightsabers to flicker. Yeah, and, and I don't remember if it was in one of those little videos that they had when they were doing the whole Force Unleashed thing, when they were doing the second one, or if it was in the first one. But I remember when they were showing all those pictures of, of Starkiller and he had the two lightsabers flicked out behind him and he was doing like the, the force shout and things were ripping apart and stuff. And they were talking about that when they were and they kept using that it's the force unleashed. And they were talking about how, you know, no Jedi were out there and that it was rushing to his call and things of that nature. And I don't know if that was in a video or where exactly I remember seeing that. But that always had me wondering what was the angle they were going to use with the force in that regard? You know, how did the force work like that? Because they would touch on that kind of stuff, but then they would back away from it. It was like, were they really trying to go somewhere with that? Or, or is that just something that's just completely wide open and fans are just theorizing on? I mean, granted, I'm going to theorize on it all day long just because that's what I do, but it starts to look like there's a picture here. And, and then it's like, well, they could go either way. So I don't know. I would love to see something in that regard with the, the title, The Force Awakens, where we find out that there is something more going on with the Force. You know, they talk about the will of the Force and what does that mean? Is the Force sentient? Isn't it? And all those kind of things. And the EU has always played with those themes, and yet canon has always kind of held back. I think the closest we've ever got with that in canon is the Mortis trilogy itself. Where we're like, wait, that's what it means to be the chosen one? So many things spring to mind from that theory about the Force just rushing in because it is unleashed. Uh, one being the idea that Palpatine should have been damn near invincible because of how few Force users there were in the galaxy, right? Truly unlimited power! Or the idea that by the time that Luke takes out Vader and Palpatine, uh, Luke should be able at the end of Return of the Jedi to be like the dude in Lawnmower and like, I am God here! <laughs> um, or uh, the idea of basically we've just turned Star Wars into Highlander. <laughs> or the movie The One with, uh, uh, who is it? Jet Li, I guess. Yeah, you know? yeah. As long as you kill all the other ones, you know, I know everything. I am everything. There could be only one. Yeah. Um, God, no. God, I hope not. Which I guess leads to the unsolved EU plots, which I, I don't know, Alexander. Uh, you know, maybe you need to toss us a, a couple ones of the ones you're thinking, because I, I was... I don't know. I thought I tried really hard when we did the continue the legends uh, episode to get as many of those things together. Um, 
So I don't know. I mean, maybe there are some. I'm sure there are some I missed. So so throw us a list of some of the ones you're thinking, because uh, you know, just in the additional coverage angle, you've given us quite a bit of things to think about. <laughs> yeah, that was my thought too. Was a didn't we do that already with the continue legends or the uh, uh, directions legends could go if it did continue thing? I mean, maybe it's more little nitpicky things that he's thinking of as opposed to the broader story concepts that we already talked about in that episode. Who knows? Yeah, and if it's a big list, hey, you know, it's worth a shot. Of course, thank you very much, Alexander, for sending in the feedback. This does wrap up our fourth feedback episode for this round, which is the end of our feedback episode string for this round. So next time, back to our regularly scheduled non-feedback content. But we did want to take the time to get some thoughts out there of ours to the things that we're hearing from, of course, listeners and give a chance for the listeners to be heard. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. And thank you, everyone, who's buried the troll with your nice reviews. We appreciate that. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions, or if you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you can get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't chorus the odds that Audible will expand into a new venture of books that you can literally digest and call it edible.com. <laughs> it was an edible audible. I just opened my mouth and out came Vader's voice. I'm kind of afraid of an edible Dot com, if only because what happens if you've eaten something and you want to turn it back in for something else? Ew, slimy. This book was <laughs> literally. And it is again. It yeah, when I turned it back <laughs> in. Oh, man. <laughs> And I realized how terribly long only this one has gotten. And I hope I didn't bore you both to death. And this didn't discourage you from listening to my other feedback. If you even block my email address as spam or something. I don't know. I guess it'd be worthwhile 
my pin snap. Let me put that down. They've even done it with some character models. I mean, when you think about the fact when that happens, it becomes more of an Easter egg. Uh, the Clone Wars slipped General Skywalker from the Clone Wars into the background of, of an episode. You mean the Star Wars? Yeah, actually, I need to say that all over because it wasn't the Clone Wars. It was Rebels, wasn't it? Yeah, it was yep, Rebels. Yeah. Lords of the Stiths. And I think you're muted. No, I'm just. I'm, I was looking up a. I was looking up a chasing Amy quote. <laughs> All right, so that gets us into part two. I I don't know why, but I started thinking of an uncomfortable place like the back seat of a Volkswagen. Exactly. Um, that's small rats, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I know. That's why I, 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 they're all interconnected that I can't even get them straight anymore. And they were so great right up until after Dogma, and then they started becoming. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, so for part two, I've got uh, uh, being in a position where there was just some kind of weird storytelling. <laughs> Excuse me. And the letters generally don't get that kind of attention. But what the? F what the? <laughs> oh, I made Magnum the mistake. I made the mistake of pulling up a uh, uh, pulling up Wikipedia to look up the adventures of Lenore Brock just to see, uh, you know, whether it was ever collected anywhere because I didn't think that it was. And sure enough, because it's a wiki, a advertisement started playing. Yet another reason why I don't visit Wook very much, but we'll talk about that later. So let me say that again. No, I have nothing. I didn't realize okay. there was a part B to it. Oh. Well, I mean, like, I. So where would I be splitting part three up? And no, you know, you. There are different files. One says says three A. One says three B. What? Oh. Fuck. I don't even have it then. I'll, have to, I'll, have to, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you because there's. I because I have five. There's one, two. Let's see. It's one, two, three A, three B, four, four additional, and five. Oh, there are yeah, seven files total. Oh, fuck. Yeah, I only have five files. Okay. They're all small. Okay, I'll send them to you. Let's see. Um, constantly be telling us. Well, I found about found out about what happened at Benghazi when it showed up on the news. I happened about the. I, I found. You know, I found about what happened. <laughs> there was another. Shoot, I forget what it was. There's something else that you said that was going to make make a political joke, but I cannot quite remember what it was. Um, oh, no, no, no. We'll <laughs> <laughs> put in part four additional. As idiots are talking outside, making it sound... You know, the, the, the gatosity level of the apartment complex just raised like crazy. I'm pretty sure that there is conjugation of verbs, just not in that conversation. Oh, it is beer 30. And you can find out where you're at if you would just stop and look. Where are you at, man? You keep stumbling like that right at a time when I'm doing something like burping on my end, and I'm worried <laughs> that you're hearing it, but it's just really weird coincidence. <laughs> Like you, like you were saying that, and right as you stumbled there, I went. <laughs> you know, did I mute? I'm not muting. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like looking like I swear I see the mute symbol. Damn it! <laughs> All right, I jumped two lines down was the problem. Oh crap! 
Is it gone? Oh. Odd. What happened to it? What the f happened to the website? The website's all f***ed up. That's very sad. Um... Yeah, something's up with the way the website is set up. Uh, yeah, here we go. I found it. So if I use my <laughs> what? So if I use my utility sink as a urinal, does that mean I've got like a point twenty-five extra of a bathroom? Oh, I have no idea. But that's just wrong. That's just wrong. <laughs> that's okay though. I'm one who is so tired of finding cat poop on our bathroom floor that one of these days I'm going to <laughs> in their litter box. <laughs> I'm going to just to see what happens. Our last feedback went so long. I uh, I started out with a, a bottle of uh, white grape juice, and it became a, a quick. Oh, I gotta I gotta leak some coolant. And then my daughter was like, "Is that white grape juice?" I'm like, "No, no, it's not. No, it's not." God no. All right, let me get this example here.